Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33% with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market so lie down Close your eyes and let me read you a story. The Magic Apples by Abby Farwell Brown It is not very amusing to be a king. Father Odin often grew tired of sitting all day long upon his golden throne in Valhalla above the heavens. He wearied of welcoming the near heroes whom the Valkyries brought him from wars upon the earth, and of watching the old heroes fight their daily deathless battles. He wearied of his wise ravens and the constant gossip 
which they brought him from the four corners of the world. And he longed to escape from everyone who knew him, to some place where he could pass for a mere stranger, instead of the great king of the Assyr, the mightiest being in the whole universe, of whom everyone was afraid. Sometimes he longed so much that he could not bear it. Then he would run away. He disguised himself as a tall old man with white hair and a long grey beard. Around his shoulders he threw a huge blue cloak that covered him from top to toe, and over his face he pulled a big slouch hat to hide his eyes. For his eyes, Odin could not change. No magician has ever learned how to do that. One was empty. He had given the eye to the giant Pamir in exchange for wisdom. Usually, Odin loved to go upon these wanderings alone. For an adventure is a double adventure when one meets it single-handed. It was a fine game for Odin to see how near he could come to danger without feeling the grip of its teeth. But sometimes, when he wanted company, he would whisper to his two brothers, Nair and Red Loki. They three would creep out of the palace by the back way, and with a finger on the lip to Heimdall, the watchman, would silently steal over the rainbow bridge, which led from Asgard into the places of men and dwarfs and giants. Wonderful adventures they had, these three, with Loki to help make things happen. Loki was a sly, mischievous fellow, full of his pranks and his capers, not always kindly ones. But he was clever as well as malicious. And when he had pushed folk into trouble, he could often help them out again, as safe as ever. He could be the jolliest of companions when he chose, and Odin liked his merriment and his witty talk. One day, Loki did something which was no mere jest, nor easily forgiven, for it brought all Asgard into danger. And after that, Father Odin and his children thought twice before inviting Loki to join them in any journey or undertaking. This which I'm about to tell was the first really wicked deed of which Loki was found guilty though I am sure his red beard had dabbled in secret wrongs before. One night, the three high gods, Odin, Hanir, and Loki, stole away from Asgard in search of adventure. Over mountains and deserts, great rivers and stony places, they wandered until they grew very hungry. But there was no food to be found, not even a berry or a nut. Oh, how footsore and tired they were, and oh, how faint. The worst of it ever is that, as you must have often noticed, the heavier one's feet grow, the lighter and more hollow becomes one's stomach, which seems a strange thing when you think of it. If only one's feet became as light as the rest of one feels, folk would fairly fly with hunger. Alas, this is not so. The three Asir drooped and drooped and seemed on the point of starvation when they came to the edge of a valley. Here, looking down, they saw a herd of oxen feeding on the grass. Ola, shouted Loki, behold our supper. Going down into the valley, they caught and killed one of the oxen 
and building a great bonfire, hung up the meat to roast. Then the three sat round the fire and smacked their lips, waiting for the meat to cook. They waited for a long time. Surely it is done now, said Loki at last, and he took the meat from the fire. Strange to say, however, it was raw as ere the fire was lighted. What could it mean? Never before had meat required so long a time to roast. They made the fire brighter and rehung the beef for a thorough basting, cooking it even longer than they had done at first. When again they came to carve the meat, they found it still uneatable. Then indeed, they looked at one another in surprise. What can this mean? cried Loki with round eyes. There is some trick, whispered Hanir, looking round as if he expected to see a fairy or a witch meddling with the food. We must find out what this mystery betokens, said Odin thoughtfully. Just then, there was a strange sound in the oak tree under which they had built their fire. What is that? Loki shouted, springing to his feet. They looked up into the tree, and far above in the branches, near the top, they spied an enormous eagle, who was staring down at them, and making a strange sound as if he were laughing. Ho ho, croaked the eagle. I know why your meat will not cook. It is my doing, masters. The three Aesir stared in surprise. Then Odin said sternly, Who are you, Master Eagle? And what do you mean by those rude words? Give me my share of the ox and you shall see, rasped the eagle in his harsh voice. Give me my share and you will find that your meat will cook as fast as you please. Now the three on the ground were nearly famished. So although it seemed very strange to be arguing with an eagle, they cried as if in one voice, Come down then and take your share. They thought that being a bird, he would want but a small piece. The eagle flapped down from the top of the tree. Dare me, what a mighty bird he was. Eight feet across the wings with the smallest measure. And his claws were as long and strong as ice hooks. He fanned the air like a whirlwind as he flew down to perch beside the bonfire. Then in his beak and claws, he seized a leg and both shoulders of the ox and started to fly away. Hold, thief, roared Loki angrily, when he saw how much the eagle was taking. That is not your share. You are no lion, but you are taking the lion's share of our feast. Be gone, scarecrow, and leave the meat as you found it. Thereat, seizing a pole, he struck at the eagle with all his might. Then a strange thing happened. As the great bird flapped upward with his prey, giving a scream of malicious laughter, the pole which Loki still held stuck fast to the eagle's back, and Loki was unable to let go of the other end. Help! Help! he shouted to Odin and to Hanair, as he felt himself lifted off his feet. But they could not help him. Help! he screamed, as the eagle flew with him, now high, now low, through brush and bog and briar, over treetops and the peaks of mountains. On and on they went, until Loki thought his arm would be pulled out, like a weed torn up by the roots. The eagle would not listen to his cries nor pause in his flight, until Loki was almost dead with pain and fatigue. 
Hark you, Loki, screamed the eagle, going a little more slowly. No one can help you except me. You are bewitched, and you cannot pull away from this pole, nor loose the pole from me, until I choose. But if you will promise what I ask, you shall go free. Then Loki groaned. Oh, eagle, only let me go, and tell me who you really are, and I will promise whatever you wish. The eagle answered, I am the great Thiassa, the enemy of the Aesir. But you ought to love me, Loki, for you yourself married a giantess. Loki moaned, Oh yes, I dearly love all my wife's family, great Thiassa. Tell me what you want of me. I want this, quoth Thiassa gruffly. I am growing old, and I want the apples which Adun keeps in her golden casket to make me young again. You must get them for me. Now these apples were the fruit of a magic tree and were more beautiful to look at and more delicious to taste than any fruit that ever grew. The best thing about them was that whoever tasted one, be he ever so old, grew young and strong again. The apples belonged to a beautiful lady named Adun who kept them in a golden casket. Every morning, the seer came to her to be refreshed and made over by a bite of her precious fruit. That is why in Asgard no one ever waxed old or ugly. Even Father Odin, Hanir and Loki, the three travellers who had seen the very beginning of everything when the world was made, were still sturdy and young. And so long as Idun kept her apples safe, the faces of the family who sat about the table of Valhalla would be rosy and fair like the faces of children. Oh, friend giant, cried Loki, you know not what you ask. The apples are the most precious treasure of Asgard, and Idun keeps watch over them as if they were dearer to her than life itself. I never could steal them from her, Thiassa, for at her call all Asgard would rush to the rescue and trouble would buzz about my ears like a hive of bees let loose. Then you must steal Adun herself, apples and all. For the apples I must have, and you have promised Loki to do my bidding. Loki sniffed and thought, thought, and sniffed again. Already his mischievous heart was planning how he might steal Adun away. He could hardly help laughing to think how angry the Asir would be when they found their beauty medicine gone forever. But he hoped that, when he had done this trick for Thiassa, now and then the giant would let him have a nibble of the magic apples, so that Loki himself would remain young long after the other seer were grown old and feeble. This thought suited Loki's malicious nature well. I think I can manage it for you, Thiassa, he said craftily. In a week, I promise to bring Adun and her apples to you. But you must not forget the great risk which I am running nor that I am your relative by marriage. I may have a favour to ask in return, Thiassa. Then the eagle gently dropped Loki from his claws. Falling on a soft bed of moss, Loki jumped up and ran back to his travelling companions, who were glad and surprised to see him again. They had feared that the eagle was carrying him away to feed his young eaglets in some far-off nest. 
Uh, you may be sure that Loki did not tell them who the eagle really was, nor confess the wicked promise which he had made about Idun and her apples. After that, the three went back to Asgard, where they had had adventure enough for one day. The days flew by, and the time came when Loki must fulfill his promise to Thiassa. So one morning, he strolled out into the meadow where Idun loved to roam among the flowers. There he found her, sitting by a tiny spring and holding her precious casket of apples in her lap. She was combing her long golden hair, which fell from under a wreath of spring flowers, and she was very beautiful. Her green robe was embroidered with buds and blossoms of silk in many colors, and she wore a golden girdle about her waist. She smiled as Loki came and tossed him a posy, saying, Good morrow, red Loki. Have you come for a bite of my apples? I see a wrinkle over each of your eyes, which I can smooth away. Nay, fair lady, answered Loki politely. I've just nibbled of another apple, which I found this morning. Verily, I think it is sweeter and more magical than yours. Idun was hurt and surprised. That cannot be, Loki, she cried. There are no apples anywhere like mine. Where found you this fine fruit? And she wrinkled up her little nose scornfully. I will not tell anyone the place, chuckled Loki, except that it is not far, in a little wood. There is a gnarled old apple tree, and on its branches grow the most beautiful red-cheeked apples you ever saw, but you could never find it. I should like to see these apples, Loki, if only to prove how far less good they are than mine. Will you bring me some? That I will not, said Loki, teasingly. Oh no, I have my own magic apples now, and folk will be coming to me for help instead of to you. Idun began to coax him as he had guessed that she would. Please, please, Loki, show me the place. At first he would not for he was a sly fellow and knew how to lead her on. At last, he pretended to yield. Well then, because I love you, Idun, better than the rest, I will show you the place if you will come with me. But it must be a secret. No one must ever know. All girls like secrets. Yes, yes, cried Idun eagerly. Let us steal away now while no one is looking. This was just what Loki hoped for. Bring your own apples, he said, that we may compare them with mine. But I know mine are better. I know mine are the best in all the world, returned Idun, pouting. I will bring them to show you the difference. Off they started together, she with a golden casket on her arm. And Loki chuckled wickedly as they went. He led her for some distance further than she had ever strayed before. And at last, she grew frightened. Where are you taking me, Loki, she cried. You said it was not far. I see no little wood, no old apple tree. It is just beyond, just a little step beyond, he answered. So on they went. But that little step took them beyond the boundary of Asgard, just a little step beyond, into the space where the giants lurked, and waited for mischief. Then there was a rustling of wings and whirr. Down came Thiassa in his eagle dress. 
Before Idun suspected what was happening, he fastened his claws into her girdle and flapped away with her, magic apples and all, to his palace in Jotunheim, the land of giants. Loki stole back to Asgard, thinking that he was quite safe and that no one would discover his villainy. At first, Idun was not missed. But after a little, the gods began to feel signs of age and went for their usual bite of her apples. Then they found that she had disappeared and a great terror fell upon them. Where had she gone? Suppose she should not come back. The hours and days went by and still she did not return. Their fright became almost a panic. Their hair began to turn grey and their limbs grew stiff and gouty so that they hobbled down Asgard streets. Even Freya, the loveliest, was afraid to look in her mirror and Balder the beautiful grew pale and haggard. The happy land of Asgard was like a garden over which a burning wind had blown. All the flower faces were faded and withered, and springtime was turned into yellow fall. If a dune and her apples were not quickly found, the gods seemed likely to shrivel and blow away like autumn leaves. They held a council to inquire into the matter, endeavouring to learn who had seen Idun last and whither she had gone. It turned out that one morning, Heimdall had seen her strolling out of Asgard with Loki, and no one had seen her since. Then the gods understood. Loki was the last person who had been with her. This must be one of Loki's tricks. They were filled with anger. They seized and bound Loki and brought him before the council. They threatened him with torture and with death unless he should tell the truth. And Loki was so frightened that finally he confessed what he had done. Then indeed, there was a horror in Asgard. Idun, stolen away by a wicked giant. Idun and her apples lost. And Asgard growing older every minute. What was to be done? Big Thor seized Loki and threw him up in the air again and again so that his heels touched first the moon and then the sea. You can still see the marks upon the moon's white face. If you do not bring Idun back from the land of your wicked wife, you shall have worse than this, he roared. Go and bring her now. How can I do that? asked Loki, trembling. That is for you to find, growled Thor. Bring her you must. Go. Loki thought for a moment. And he said, I will bring her back if Freya will loan me her falcon dress. The giant dresses as an eagle. I too must guise me as a bird, or we cannot outwit him. Then Freya hemmed and hawed. She did not wish to loan her feather dress, for it was very precious. But all the seer begged, and finally she consented. It was a beautiful great dress of brown feathers and grey, and in it, Freya loved to skim like a falcon among the clouds and stars. Loki put it on, and when he had done so, he looked exactly like a great brown hawk. Only his bright black eyes remained the same, glancing here and there so that they lost sight of nothing. With a whir of his wings, Loki flew off to the north, across mountains and valleys, and the great river Ifing, which lay between Asgard and Giantland, 
and at last he came to the palace of Thiasa the giant. It happened, fortunately, that Thiasa had gone fishing in the sea, and Idun was left alone, weeping and broken-hearted. Presently, she heard a little tap on her window, and looking up, she saw a great brown bird perching on the ledge. He was so big that Idun was frightened and gave a scream, but the bird nodded pleasantly and croaked. Don't be afraid, Idun. I'm a friend. I'm Loki, come to set you free. Loki. Loki is no friend of mine. He brought me here, she sobbed. I don't believe you came to save me. That is indeed why I'm here, he replied. And a dangerous business it is, if the Aster should come back before we start for home. How will you get me out? asked Adun doubtfully. The door is locked, and the window is barred. I will change you into a nut, said he, and carry you in my claws. What of the casket of apples? queried Adun. Can you carry that also? Then Loki laughed long and loudly. What welcome to Asgard do you think I should receive without the apples, he cried. Yes, we must take them indeed. Adun came to the window, and Loki, who was a skillful magician, turned her into a nut and took her in one claw, while in the other he seized the casket of apples. Then off he whirred out of the palace gardens and away toward Asgard's safety. In a little while, Thiasa returned home, and when he found Idun and her apples gone, there was a hubbub, you may be sure. However, he lost little time by smashing mountains and breaking trees in his giant rage that fit was soon over. He put on his eagle plumage and started in pursuit of the falcon. Now an eagle is bigger and stronger than any other bird, and usually in a long race, he can beat even the swift hawk, who has an hour's start. Presently, Loki heard behind him the shrill scream of a giant eagle, and his heart turned sick. He had crossed the great river and already was in sight of Asgard. The aged Asir were gathered on the rainbow bridge, watching eagerly for Loki's return. And when they spied the falcon with the nut and the casket in his talons, they knew who it was. A great cheer went up, but it was hushed in a moment, for they saw the eagle close after the falcon, and they guessed that this must be the giant Thiasa, the stealer of Idun. Then there was a great shouting of commands and a rushing to and fro. All the gods, even Father Odin and his two wise ravens, were busy gathering chips into great heaps on the walls of Asgard. As soon as Loki, with his precious burden, had fluttered weakly over the wall, dropping to the ground beyond. The gods lighted the heaps of chips which they had piled, and soon there was a wall of fire over which the eagle must fly. He was going too fast to stop. The flames roared and crackled, but the Asa flew straight into them with a scream of fear and rage. His feathers caught fire and burned, so that he could no longer fly but fell headlong to the ground inside the walls. Then Thor, the Thunderlord, and Tyr, the mighty war king, fell upon him and slew him so that he could never trouble the Aesir anymore. There was a great rejoicing in Asgard that night, for Loki changed Idun again to a fair lady, 
whereupon she gave each of the eager gods a bite of her life-giving fruit, so that they grew young and happy once more, as if all these horrors had never happened. Not one of them, however, forgot the evil part which Loki had played in these doings. They hid the memory like a buried seed, deep in their hearts. Thenceforward, the word of Loki and the honour of his name were poor coin in Asgard, which is no wonder. The Happy Hunter and the Skillful Fisher A Japanese fairy tale collected in a book by Ye Theodora Ozaki. Long, long ago, Japan was governed by Hohodemi, the fourth Mikoto, in descent from the illustrious Amaterasu, the sun goddess. He was not only as handsome as his ancestress was beautiful, but he was also very strong and brave, and was famous for being the greatest hunter in the land. Because of his matchless skill as a hunter, he was called Yamasachi Iko, or the happy hunter of the mountains. His elder brother was a very skillful fisher, and as he far surpassed all rivals in fishing, he was named Umisachihiko, or the skillful fisher of the sea. The brothers thus led happy lives, thoroughly enjoying their respective occupations, and the days passed quickly and pleasantly while each pursued his own way, the one hunting and the other fishing. One day, the happy hunter came to his brother, the skillful fisher, and said, Well, my brother, I see you go to the sea every day with your fishing rod in your hand, and when you return you come laden with fish. And as for me, it is my pleasure to take my bow and arrow and to hunt the wild animals up the mountains and down in the valleys. For a long time we have each followed our favorite occupation, so that now we must both be tired you of your fishing and I of my hunting. Would it not be wise for us to make a change? Will you try hunting in the mountains, and I will go fish in the sea? The skillful fisher listened in silence to his brother, and for a moment was thoughtful, but at last he answered, Oh yes, why not? Your idea is not a bad one at all. Give me your bow and arrow, and I will set out at once for the mountains and hunt for game. So the matter was settled by this talk, and the two brothers each started out to try the other's occupation, little dreaming of all that would happen. It was very unwise of them, for the happy hunter knew nothing of fishing, and the skillful fisher, who was bad-tempered, knew as much about hunting. The happy hunter took his brother's much-prized fishing hook and rod and went down to the seashore and sat down on the rocks. He baited his hook and then threw it into the sea clumsily. He sat and gazed at the little float bobbing up and down in the water and longed for a good fish to come and be caught. Every time the boy moved a little, he pulled up his rod, but there was never a fish at the end of it, only the hook and the bait. If he had known how to fish properly, he would have been able to catch plenty of fish but although he was the greatest hunter in the land, 
he could not help being the most bungling fisher. The whole day passed in this way, while he sat on the rocks, holding the fishing rod and waiting in vain for his luck to turn. At last, the day began to darken, and the evening came. Still, he had caught not a single fish. Drawing up his line for the last time before going home, he found that he had lost his hook without even knowing when he had dropped it. He now began to feel extremely anxious, for he knew that his brother would be angry at his having lost his hook, for, it being his only one, he valued it above all other things. The happy hunter now set to work to look among the rocks and on the sand for the lost hook, and while he was searching to and fro, his brother, the skillful fisher, arrived on the scene. He had failed to find any game while hunting that day, and was not only in a bad temper, but looked fearfully cross. When he saw the happy hunter searching about on the shore, he knew that something must have gone wrong. So he said at once, What are you doing, my brother? The happy hunter went forward timidly, for he feared his brother's anger, and said, Oh, my brother, I have indeed done badly. What is the matter? What have you done? asked the elder brother, impatiently. I have lost your precious fishing hook. While he was still speaking, his brother stopped him and cried out fiercely, Lost my hook? It is just what I expected. For this reason, when you first proposed your plan of changing over our occupations, I was really against it. But you seemed to wish it so much that I gave in and allowed you to do as you wished. The mistake of our trying unfamiliar tasks is soon seen, and you have done badly. I will not return you your bow and arrow till you have found my hook. Look to it that you find it and return it to me quickly. The happy hunter felt that he was to blame for all that had come to pass, and bore his brother's scornful scolding with humility and patience. He hunted everywhere for the hook most diligently, but it was nowhere to be found. He was at last obliged to give up all hope of finding it. He then went home, and in desperation broke his beloved sword into pieces and made five hundred hooks out of it. He took these to his angry brother and offered them to him, asking his forgiveness and begging him to accept them in the place of the one he had lost for him. It was useless. His brother would not listen to him, much less grant his request. The happy hunter then made another five hundred hooks and again took them to his brother, beseeching him to pardon him. Though you make a million hooks, said the skillful fisher, shaking his head, they are of no use to me. I cannot forgive you unless you bring me back my own hook. Nothing would appease the anger of the skillful fisher, for he had a bad disposition and had always hated his brother because of his virtues. And now with the excuse of the lost fishing hook, he planned to kill him and to usurp his place as ruler of Japan. The happy hunter knew all this full well, but he could say nothing, for being the younger he owed his elder brother obedience. So he returned to the seashore and once more began to look for the missing hook. He was much cast down, for he had lost all hope of ever finding his brother's hook now. While he stood on the beach, lost in perplexity and wondering what he had best do next, an old man suddenly appeared carrying a stick in his hand. 
The happy hunter afterwards remembered that he did not see from whence the old man came. Neither did he know how he was there. He happened to look up and saw the old man coming towards him. You are Hohodemi, sometimes called the happy hunter, are you not? asked the old man. What are you doing alone in such a place? Yes, I am he, answered the unhappy young man. Unfortunately, while fishing, I lost my brother's precious fishing hook. I have hunted this shore all over, but alas, I cannot find it, and I am very troubled, for my brother won't forgive me till I restore it to him. But who are you? My name is Shiwozuchino Okina, and I live nearby on this shore. I'm sorry to hear what misfortune has befallen you. You must indeed be anxious. But if I tell you what I think, the hook is nowhere here. It is either at the bottom of the sea or in the body of some fish who has swallowed it. And for this reason, though you spend your whole life looking for it here, you will never find it. Then what can I do? asked the distressed man. You had better go down to Ringu and tell Rinjin, the dragon king of the sea, what your trouble is and ask him to find the hook for you. I think that would be the best way. Your idea is a splendid one, said the happy hunter. But I fear I cannot get to the sea king's realm, for I've always heard that it is situated at the bottom of the sea. Oh, there will be no difficulty about your getting there, said the old man. I can soon make something for you to ride on through the sea. Thank you, said the happy hunter. I shall be very grateful to you if you be so kind. The old man at once set to work and soon made a basket and offered it to the happy hunter. He received it with joy and taking it to the water, mounted it and prepared to start. He bade goodbye to the kind old man who had helped him so much and told him that he would certainly reward him as soon as he found his hook and could return to Japan without fear of his brother's anger. The old man pointed out the direction he must take and told him how to reach the realm of Ringu and watched him ride out to sea on the basket, which resembled a small boat. The happy hunter made all the haste he could riding on the basket which had been given him by his friend. His strange boat seemed to go through the water of its own accord, and the distance was much shorter than he had expected, for in a few hours he caught sight of the gate and the roof of the Sea King's palace. What a large place it was, with its numberless sloping roofs and gables, its huge gateways and its grey stone walls. He soon landed, and leaving his basket on the beach, he walked up to the large gateway. The pillars of the gate were made of beautiful red coral, and the gate itself was adorned with glittering gems of all kinds. Large katsura trees overshadowed it. Our hero had often heard of the wonders of the Sea King's palace beneath the sea, but all the stories he had ever heard fell short of the reality which he now saw for the first time. The happy hunter would have liked to enter the gate there and then, but he saw that it was fast closed, and also that there was no one about whom he could ask to open it for him, so he stopped to think what he should do. In the shade of the trees before the gate, he noticed a well full of fresh spring water. Surely someone would come out to draw water from the well sometime, he thought. 
Then he climbed into the tree overhanging the well and seated himself to rest on one of the branches and waited for what might happen. Ere long, he saw the huge gate swing open and two beautiful women came out. Now the Mikoto had always heard that Ringu was the realm of the dragon king under the sea and had naturally supposed that the place was inhabited by dragons and similar terrible creatures, so that when he saw these two lovely princesses whose beauty would be rare even in the world from which he had just come, he was exceedingly surprised and wondered what it could mean. He said not a word, however, but silently gazed at them through the foliage of the trees, waiting to see what they would do. He saw that in their hands they carried golden buckets. Slowly and gracefully, in their trailing garments, they approached the well, standing in the shade of the katsura trees, and were about to draw water, all unknowing of the stranger who was watching them, for the happy hunter was quite hidden among the branches of the tree where he had posted himself. As the two ladies leaned over the side of the well to let down their golden buckets, which they did every day in the year, they saw reflected in the deep still water the face of a handsome youth gazing at them from amidst the branches of the tree in whose shade they stood. Never before had they seen the face of a mortal man. They were frightened and drew back quickly with their golden buckets in their hands. Their curiosity, however, soon gave them courage, and they glanced timidly upwards to see the cause of the unusual reflection and then they beheld the happy hunter sitting in the tree, looking down at them with surprise and admiration. They gazed at him face to face, but their tongues were still with wonder and could not find a word to say to him. When the Mikoto saw that he was discovered, he sprang down lightly from the tree and said, I am a traveller, and as I was very thirsty I came to the well in hopes of quenching my thirst but I could find no bucket with which to draw the water. So I climbed into the tree, much vexed, and waited for someone to come. Just at that moment, while I was thirstily and impatiently waiting, you noble ladies appeared as if in answer to my great need. Therefore, I pray you of your mercy, give me some water to drink, for I am a thirsty traveller in a strange land. His dignity and graciousness overruled their timidity and bowing in silence they both once more approached the well and letting down their golden buckets drew up some water and poured it in a jeweled cup and offered it to the stranger. He received it from them with both hands, raising it to the height of his forehead in token of high respect and pleasure, and then drank the water quickly for his thirst was great. When he had finished his long draught, he set the cup down on the edge of the well, and drawing his short sword, he cut off one of the strange carved jewels, a necklace of which hung round his neck and fell over his breast. He placed the jewel in the cup and returned it to them, and said, bowing deeply, This is a token of my thanks. The two ladies took the cup, and looking into it to see what he had put inside, for they did not know yet what it was, they gave a start of surprise, for there lay a beautiful gem at the bottom of the cup. No ordinary mortal would give away a jewel so freely. Will you not honour us by telling us who you are? asked the elder damsel. 
Certainly, said the happy hunter. I am Hohodemi, the fourth Mikoto, also called in Japan, the happy hunter. Are you indeed Hohodemi, the grandson of Amaterasu, the sun goddess? asked the damsel who had spoken first. I'm the eldest daughter of Rinjin, the king of the sea, and my name is Princess Tayodama. And, said the younger maiden, who at last found her tongue, I am her sister, the Princess Tamayori. Are you indeed the daughters of Rinjin, the king of the sea? I cannot tell you how glad I am to meet you, said the happy hunter. And without waiting for them to reply, he went on. The other day I went fishing with my brother's hook and dropped it. How, I am sure I can't tell, as my brother prizes his fishing hook above all his other possessions. This is the greatest calamity that could have befallen me. Unless I find it again, I can never hope to win my brother's forgiveness, for he is very angry at what I have done. I have searched for it many, many times, but I cannot find it. Therefore, I am much troubled. While I was hunting for the hook in great distress, I met a wise old man, and he told me that the best thing I could do was to come to Ringu and to Rinjin, the dragon king of the sea, and ask him to help me. This kind old man also showed me how to come. Now you know how it is I am here and why. I want to ask Rinjin if he knows where the lost hook is. Will you be so kind as to take me to your father? And do you think he will see me? asked the happy hunter, anxiously. Princess Tayotama listened to this long story and then said, Not only is it easy for you to see my father, but he will be much pleased to meet you. I am sure he will say that good fortune has befallen him, that so great and noble a man as you, the grandson of Amaterasu, should come down to the bottom of the sea. And then, turning to her younger sister, she said, Do you not think so? Tamayori? Yes, indeed, answered the Princess Tamayori in her sweet voice. As you say, we can know no greater honor than to welcome the Mikoto to our home. Then I ask you to be so kind as to lead the way, said the happy hunter. Condescend to enter, Mikoto, said both the sisters, and bowing low, they led him through the gate. The younger princess left her sister to take charge of the happy hunter, and going faster than they, she reached the sea king's palace first, and running quickly to her father's room, she told him of all that had happened to them at the gate, and that her sister was even now bringing the Augustness to them. The dragon king of the sea was much surprised at the news, for it was but seldom, perhaps only once in several hundred years, that the sea king's palace was visited by mortals. Rinjin at once clapped his hands and summoned all his courtiers and the servants of the palace and the chief fish of the sea together and solemnly told them that the grandson of the sun goddess was coming to the palace and that they must be very ceremonious and polite in serving the visitor. He then ordered them all to the entrance of the palace to welcome the happy hunter. Rinjin then dressed himself in his robes of ceremony and went out to welcome him. In a few moments, the princess Tayotama and the happy hunter reached the entrance, and the sea king and his wife bowed to the ground and thanked him for the honor he did them in coming to see them. The sea king then led the happy hunter to the guest room and placed him in the uppermost seat, 
He bowed respectfully before him and said, I am Rinjin, the dragon king of the sea, and this is my wife. Condescend to remember us forever. Are you indeed Rinjin, the king of the sea, of whom I've heard so often, answered the happy hunter, saluting his host most ceremoniously. I must apologize for all the trouble I am giving you by my unexpected visit. And he bowed again and thanked the sea king. You need not thank me, said Rinjin. It is I who must thank you for coming. Although the sea palace is a poor place, as you see, I shall be highly honored if you will make us a long visit. There was much gladness between the sea king and the happy hunter, and they sat and talked for a long time. At last, the sea king clapped his hands, and then a huge retinue of fishes appeared, all robed in ceremonial garments and bearing in their fins various trays on which all kinds of sea delicacies were served. A great feast was now spread before the king and his royal guest. All the fishes in waiting were chosen from amongst the finest fish in the sea. So you can imagine what a wonderful array of sea creatures it was that waited upon the happy hunter that day. All in the palace tried to do their best to please him and to show him that he was a much honoured guest. During the long repast, which lasted for hours, Rinjin commanded his daughters to play some music, and the two princesses came in and performed on the koto, the Japanese harp, and sang and danced in turns. The time passed so pleasantly that the happy hunter seemed to forget his trouble and why he had come at all to the sea king's realm, and he gave himself up to the enjoyment of this wonderful place, the land of fairy fishes. Who has ever heard of such a marvellous place? But the Mikoto soon remembered what had brought him to Ringu and said to his host, Perhaps your daughters have told you, King Rinjin, that I have come here to try and recover my brother's fishing hook, which I lost while fishing the other day. May I ask you to be so kind as to inquire of all your subjects if any of them have seen a fishing hook lost in the sea? Certainly, said the obliging sea king. I will immediately summon them all here and ask them. As soon as he had issued his command, the octopus, the cuttlefish, the bonito, the oxtail fish, the eel, the jellyfish, the shrimp, and the place, and many other fishes of all kinds came in and sat down before King Rinjin and arranged themselves and their fins in order. Then the sea king said solemnly, Our visitor who is sitting before you all is the grandson of Amaterasu. His name is Hohodemi, and he is also called the Happy Hunter of the Mountains. While he was fishing the other day upon the shore of Japan, someone robbed him of his brother's fishing hook. He has come all this way down to the bottom of the sea to our kingdom because he thought that one of you fishes may have taken the hook from him in mischievous play. If any of you have done so, you must immediately return it. Or if any of you know who the thief is, you must at once tell us his name and where he is now. All the fishes were taken by surprise when they heard these words and could say nothing for some time. They sat looking at each other and at the dragon king. At last, the cuttlefish came forward and said, I think the tie, the red bream, must be the thief who has stolen the hook. Where's your proof? asked the king. 
Since yesterday evening, the Thai has not been able to eat anything, and he seems to be suffering from a bad throat. For this reason, I think the hook may be in his throat. You had better send for him at once. All the fish agreed to this and said, It is certainly strange that the Thai is the only fish who has not obeyed your summons. Will you send for him and inquire into the matter? Then our innocence will be proved. Yes, said the Sea King. It is strange that the Thai has not come, for he ought to be the first to be here. Send for him at once. Without waiting for the king's order, the cuttlefish had already started for the Thai's dwelling, and he now returned, bringing the Thai with him. He led him before the king. The Thai sat there, looking frightened and ill. He certainly was in pain, for his usually red face was pale, and his eyes were nearly closed and looked about half their size. Answer, O Thai, cried the sea king. Why did you not come in answer to my summons today? I have been ill since yesterday, answered the Thai. That is why I could not come. Don't say another word, cried out Rinjin angrily. Your illness is the punishment of the gods for stealing the Mikoto's hook. It is only too true, said the Thai. The hook is still in my throat, and all my efforts to get it out have been useless. I can't eat, and I can scarcely breathe, and each moment I feel that it will choke me, and sometimes it gives me great pain. I had no intention of stealing the Mikoto's hook. I heedlessly snapped at the bait which I saw in the water, and the hook came off and stuck in my throat. So I hope you will pardon me. The cuttlefish now came forward and said to the king, What I said was right. You see, the hook still sticks in the Thai's throat. I hope to be able to pull it out in the presence of the Mikoto, and then we can return it to him safely. Oh, please make haste and pull it out, cried the Thai pitifully, for he felt the pains in his throat coming on again. I do so want to return the hook to the Mikoto. All right, Daisan, said the friend, the cuttlefish. And then opening the Thai's mouth as wide as he could, and putting one of his feelers down the Thai's throat, he quickly and easily drew the hook out of the sufferer's large mouth. He then washed it and brought it to the king. Rin Jin took the hook from his subject, and then respectfully returned it to the happy hunter, who was overjoyed at getting back his hook. He thanked Rin Jin many times, his face beaming with gratitude, and said that he owed the happy ending of his quest to the Sea King's wise authority and kindness. Rinjin now desired to punish the Thai, but the happy hunter begged him not to do so, since his lost hook was thus happily recovered, he did not wish to make more trouble for the poor Thai. It was indeed the Thai who had taken the hook, but he had already suffered enough for his fault, if fault it could be called. What had been done was done in heedlessness and not by intention. The happy hunter said he blamed himself. If he had understood how to fish properly, he would never have lost his hook, and therefore all this trouble had been caused in the first place by his trying to do something which he did not know how to do. So he begged the sea king to forgive his subject. Who could resist the pleading of so wise and compassionate a judge? Rinjin forgave his subject at once at the request of his guest. The Thai was so glad that he shook his fins for joy, and he and all the other fish went out from the presence of their king, praising the virtues of the happy hunter. Now that the hook was found, 
the happy hunter had nothing to keep him in Ringu, and he was anxious to get back to his own kingdom and to make peace with his angry brother, the skillful fisher. But the sea king, who had learned to love him and would fain have kept him as a son, begged him not to go so soon, but to make the sea palace his home as long as ever he liked. While the happy hunter was still hesitating, the two lovely princesses, Tayotama and Tamayori, came, and with the sweetest of bows and voices joined with her father in pressing him to stay. So without seeming ungracious, he could not say them nay, and was obliged to stay on for some time. Between the sea realm and the earth, there was no difference in the night of time, and the happy hunter found that three years went fleeting quickly by in this delightful land. The years pass swiftly when anyone is truly happy. But though the wonders of that enchanted land seemed to be new every day, and though the sea king's kindness seemed rather to increase than to grow less with time, the happy hunter grew more and more homesick as the days passed, and he could not repress a great anxiety to know what had happened to his home and his country and his brother while he had been away. So at last he went to the sea king and said, My stay with you here has been most happy, and I am very grateful to you for all your kindness to me. But I govern Japan, and delightful as this place is, I cannot absent myself forever from my country. I must also return the fishing hook to my brother and ask his forgiveness for having deprived him of it for so long. I am indeed very sorry to part from you, but this time it cannot be helped. With your gracious permission, I will take my leave today. I hope to make you another visit someday. Please give up the idea of my staying longer now. King Rinjin was overcome with sorrow at the thought that he must lose his friend, who had made a great diversion in the Palace of the Sea, and his tears fell fast as he answered, We are indeed very sorry to part with you, Mikoto, for we have enjoyed your stay with us very much. You have been a noble and honoured guest, and we have heartily made you welcome. I quite understand that as you govern Japan you ought to be there and not here, and that it is vain for us to try and keep you longer with us, much as we would like to have you stay. I hope you will not forget us. Strange circumstances have brought us together, and I trust the friendship thus began between the land and the sea will last and grow stronger than it has ever been before. When the sea king had finished speaking, he turned to his two daughters and bade them bring the two tied jewels of the sea. The two princesses bowed low, rose and glided out of the hall. In a few minutes they returned, each one carrying in her hands a flashing gem which filled the room with light. As the happy hunter looked at them, he wondered what they could be. The sea king took them from his daughters and said to his guest, These two valuable talismans we have inherited from our ancestors from time immemorial. We now give them to you as a parting gift in token of our great affection for you. These two gems are called the Nanjiyu and the Kanjiyu. The happy hunter bowed low to the ground and said, I can never thank you enough for all your kindness to me. And now will you add one more favor to the rest and tell me what these jewels are and what I am to do with them? The Nanjiyu, answered the sea king, is also called the Jewel of the Flood Tide, and whoever holds it in his possession can command the sea to roll in and to flood the land at any time that he wills. The Kanjiyu is also called the Jewel of the Ebbing Tide, 
and this gem controls the sea and the waves thereof, and will cause even a tidal wave to recede. Then Rinjin showed his friend how to use the talismans one by one, and handed them to him. The happy hunter was very glad to have these two wonderful gems, the jewel of the flood tide and the jewel of the ebon tide, to take back with him, for he felt that they would preserve him in case of danger from enemies at any time. After thanking his kind host again and again, he prepared to depart. The sea king and the two princesses, Tayotama and Tamayori, and all the inmates of the palace came to say goodbye, and before the sound of the last farewell had died away, the happy hunter passed out from under the gateway, past the well of happy memory standing in the shade of the great Katsura trees on his way to the beach. Here he found, instead of the strange basket on which he had come to the realm of Ringu, a large crocodile waiting for him. Never had he seen such a huge creature. It measured eight fathoms in length from the tip of its tail to the end of its long mouth. The sea king had ordered the monster to carry the happy hunter back to Japan. Like the wonderful basket which Shiwuzuchino Okina had made, it could travel faster than any steamboat, and in this strange way, riding on the back of a crocodile, the happy hunter returned to his own land. As soon as the crocodile landed him, the happy hunter hastened to tell the skillful fisher of his return. He then gave him back the fishing hook which had been found in the mouth of the Tai, and which had been the cause of so much trouble between them. He earnestly begged his brother's forgiveness, telling him all that had happened to him in the Sea King's palace, and what wonderful adventures had led to the finding of the hook. Now the skillful fisher had used the lost hook as an excuse for driving his brother out of the country. When his brother had left him that day three years ago and had not returned, he had been very glad in his evil heart, and had at once usurped his brother's place as ruler of the land, and had become powerful and rich. Now, in the midst of enjoying what did not belong to him, and hoping that his brother might never return to claim his rights, quite unexpectedly there stood the happy hunter before him. The skillful fisher feigned forgiveness, for he could make no more excuses for sending his brother away again. But in his heart, he was very angry and hated his brother more and more, till at last he could no longer bear the sight of him day after day, and planned and watched for an opportunity to kill him. One day, when the happy hunter was walking in the rice fields, his brother followed him with a dagger. The happy hunter knew that his brother was following him to kill him, and he felt that now, in this hour of great danger, was the time to use the jewels of the flow and ebb of the tide, and prove whether what the sea king had told him was true or not. So he took out the jewel of the flood tide from the bosom of his dress and raised it to his forehead. Instantly, over the fields and over the farms, the sea came rolling in wave upon wave until it reached the spot where his brother was standing. The skillful fisher stood amazed and terrified to see what was happening. In another minute, he was struggling in the water and calling on his brother to save him from drowning. The happy hunter had a kind heart that could not bear the sight of his brother's distress. He at once put back the jewel of the flood tide and took out the jewel of the ebb tide. No sooner did he hold it up as high as his forehead than the sea ran back and back, and ere long 
the tossing, rolling floods had vanished, and the farms and fields and dry land appeared as before. The skillful fisher was very frightened at the peril of death in which he had stood, and was greatly impressed by the wonderful things he had seen his brother do. He learned now that he was making a fatal mistake to set himself against his brother, younger than he thought he was, for he now had become so powerful that the sea would flow in and the tide ebb at his word of command. So he humbled himself before the happy hunter and asked him to forgive him all the wrong he had done him. The skillful fisher promised to restore his brother to his rights and also swore that though the happy hunter was the younger brother and owed him allegiance by right of birth, that he, the skillful fisher, would exalt him as his superior and bow before him as lord of all Japan. Then the happy hunter said that he would forgive his brother if he would throw into the receding tide all his evil ways. The skillful fisher promised, and there was peace between the two brothers. From this time, he kept his word and became a good man and a kind brother. The happy hunter now ruled his kingdom without being disturbed by family strife, and there was peace in Japan for a long, long time. Above all, the treasures in his house, he prized the wonderful jewels of the flow and ebb of the tide, which had been given him by Rinjin, the dragon king of the sea. This is the end of the tale of the happy hunter and the skillful fisher. The Story of Pretty Goldilocks Once upon a time, there was a princess who was the prettiest creature in the world. And because she was so beautiful, and because her hair was like the finest gold, and waved and rippled nearly to the ground, she was called Pretty Goldilocks. She always wore a crown of flowers, and her dresses were embroidered with diamonds and pearls, and everybody who saw her fell in love with her. Now one of her neighbors was a young king who was not married. He was very rich and handsome, and when he heard all that was said about pretty Goldilocks, though he had never seen her, he fell so deeply in love with her that he could neither eat nor drink. So he resolved to send an ambassador to ask her in marriage. He had a splendid carriage made for his ambassador and gave him more than a hundred horses and a hundred servants and told him to be sure and bring the princess back with him. After he had started, nothing else was talked of at court and the king felt so sure that the princess would consent that he set his people to work making pretty dresses and splendid furniture that they might be ready by the time she came. Meanwhile, the ambassador arrived at the princess's palace and delivered his little message. But whether she happened to be cross that day or whether the compliment did not please her, it is not known. She only answered that she was very much obliged to the king, but she had no wish to be married. The ambassador set off sadly on his homeward way, bringing all the king's presents back with him, for the princess was too well brought up to accept the pearls and diamonds when she would not accept the king 
and she had only kept twenty-five English pins that he might not be vexed. When the ambassador reached the city, where the king was waiting impatiently, everybody was very much annoyed with him for not bringing the princess, and the king cried like a baby, and nobody could console him. Now there was at the court a young man who was more clever and handsome than anyone else. He was called Charming, and everyone loved him, excepting a few envious people who were angry at his being the king's favourite and knowing all the state secrets. He happened to one day be with some people who were speaking of the ambassador's return and saying that his going to the princess had not done much good, when Charming said rashly, If the king had sent me to the Princess Goldilocks, I'm sure she would have come back with me. His enemies at once went to the king and said, You will hardly believe, sire, what Charming has the audacity to say, that if he had been sent to the Princess Goldilocks, she would certainly have come back with him. He seems to think that he is so much handsomer than you that the princess would have fallen in love with him and followed him willingly. The king was very angry when he heard this. Ha, said he, does he laugh at my unhappiness and think himself more fascinating than I am? Go and let him be shut up in my great tower to die of hunger. So the king's guards went to fetch Charming, who had thought no more of his rash speech, and carried him off to prison with great cruelty. The poor prisoner had only a little straw for his bed, and but for a little stream of water which flowed through the tower, he would have died of thirst. One day, when he was in despair, he said to himself, How can I have offended the king? I am his most faithful subject, and have done nothing against him. The king chanced to be passing the tower, and recognised the voice of his former favourite. He stopped to listen, in spite of Charming's enemies, who tried to persuade him to have nothing more to do with the traitor. But the king said, Be quiet. I wish to hear what he says. And then he opened the tower door and called to Charming, who came very sadly and kissed the king's hand, saying, What have I done, sire, to deserve this cruel treatment? You mocked me and my ambassador, said the king, and you said that if I had sent you for the princess Goldilocks, you would certainly have brought her back. It is quite true, sire, replied Charming. I should have drawn such a picture of you and represented your good qualities in such a way that I am certain the princess would have found you irresistible, but I cannot see what there is in that to make you angry. The king could not see any cause for anger either, when the matter was presented to him in this light. And he began to frown very fiercely at the courtiers who had so misrepresented his favourite. So he took Charming back to the palace with him, and after seeing that he had a very good supper, he said to him, You know that I love pretty Goldilocks as much as ever. Her refusal has not made any difference to me, and I don't know how to make her change her mind. I really should like to send you to see if you can persuade her to marry me. Charming replied that he was perfectly willing to go and would set out the very next day. But you must wait till I can get a grand escort for you, said the king. But Charming said 
that he only wanted a good horse to ride. And the king, who was delighted at his being ready to start so promptly, gave him letters to the princess and bade him good speed. It was on a Monday morning that he set out all alone upon his errand, thinking of nothing but how he could persuade the princess Goldilocks to marry the king. He had a writing book in his pocket, and whenever any happy thought struck him, he dismounted from his horse and sat down under the trees to put it into the harangue which he was preparing for the princess before he forgot it. One day, when he had started at the very earliest dawn and was riding over a great meadow, he suddenly had a capital idea, and springing from his horse, he sat down under a willow tree which grew by a little river. When he had written it down, he was looking round him, pleased to find himself in such a pretty place, and all at once he saw a great golden carp lying, gasping and exhausted, upon the grass. And leaping after little flies, she had thrown herself high upon the bank, where she had lain till she was nearly dead. Charming had pity upon her, and though he couldn't help thinking that she would have been very nice for dinner, he picked her up gently and put her back into the water. As soon as Dame Carp felt the refreshing coolness of the water, she sank down joyfully to the bottom of the river. Then, swimming up to the bank quite boldly, she said, I thank you, Charming, for the kindness you have done me. You've saved my life. One day I will repay you. So saying, she sank down into the water again, leaving Charming greatly astonished at her politeness. Another day, as he journeyed on, he saw a raven in great distress. The poor bird was closely pursued by an eagle, which would soon have eaten it up, had Charming not quickly fitted an arrow to his bow and shot the eagle dead. The raven perched upon a tree very joyfully. Charming, said he, it was very generous of you to rescue a poor raven. I'm not ungrateful. Some day, I will repay you. Charming thought it was very nice of the raven to say, and went on his way. Before the sun rose, he found himself in a thick wood, where it was too dark for him to see his path. And here he heard an owl crying as if it were in despair. Hark, said he, that must be an owl in great trouble. I am sure it has got into a snare. And he went to hunt about and presently found a great net which some bird-catchers had spread the night before. What a pity it is that men do nothing but torment and persecute poor creatures, which never do them any harm, said he. And he took out his knife and cut the cords of the net, and the owl flitted away into the darkness. But then, turning with one flicker of her wings, she came back to Charming and said, it does not need many words to tell you how great a service you have done me. I was caught. In a few minutes, the fowlers would have been here. Without your help, I should have been killed. I am grateful, and one day I will repay you. These three adventures were the only ones of any consequence that befell Charming upon his journey, and he made all the haste he could to reach the palace of the Princess Goldilocks. When he arrived, he thought everything he saw delightful 
and magnificent. Diamonds were as plentiful as pebbles, and gold and silver, the beautiful dresses, the sweetmeats and pretty things that were everywhere quite amazed him. He thought to himself, if the princess consents to leave all this and come with me to marry the king, he may think himself lucky. Then he dressed himself, carefully, in rich brocade, with scarlet and white plumes, and threw a splendid embroidered scarf over his shoulder, and he presented himself at the door of the palace, carrying in his arm a tiny pretty dog which he had bought on the way. The guard saluted him respectfully, and a messenger was sent to the princess to announce the arrival of Charming as ambassador of her neighbor the king. Charming, said the princess, the name promises well. I have no doubt that he is good-looking and fascinates everybody. Indeed he does, madam, said all her maids of honor in one breath. We saw him from the window at the garret where we were spinning flax, and we could do nothing but look at him as long as he was in sight. Well, to be sure, said the princess, that's how you amuse yourselves, is it? Looking at strangers out of the window? Be quick, and give me my blue satin embroidered dress, and comb out my golden hair. Let somebody make me fresh garlands of flowers, and give me my high-heeled shoes and my fan, and tell them to sweep my great hall and my throne, for I want everyone to say I am really pretty, Goldilocks. You can imagine how all her maids scurried this way and that to make the princess ready, and how in their haste they knocked their heads together and hindered each other till she thought they would never have done. However at last, they led her into the gallery of mirrors that she might assure herself that nothing was lacking in her appearance, and then she mounted her throne of gold, ebony, and ivory, while her ladies took their guitars and began to sing softly. Then Charming was led in, and was so struck with astonishment and admiration that at first not a word could he say. But presently he took courage and delivered his speech, bravely ending by begging the princess to spare him the disappointment of going back without her. Sir Charming, answered she, all the reasons you have given me are very good ones, and I assure you that I should have more pleasure in obliging you than anyone else. But you must know that a month ago, as I was walking by the river with my ladies, I took off my glove, and as I did so, a ring that I was wearing slipped off my finger and rolled into the water. As I valued it more than my kingdom, you may imagine how vexed I was at losing it, and I vowed never to listen to any proposal of marriage unless the ambassador first brought me back my ring. So now you know what is expected of you. For if you talked for fifteen days and fifteen nights, you could not make me change my mind. Charming was very much surprised by this answer, but he bowed low to the princess and begged her to accept the embroidered scarf and the tiny dog he had brought with him. But she answered that she did not want any presents and that he was to remember what she had just told him. When he got back to his lodging, he went to bed without eating any supper, and his little dog, who was called Frisk, couldn't eat any either, but came and lay down close to him. All night, Charming sighed and lamented. How am I to find a ring, 
that fell into the river a month ago, said he. It is useless to try. The princess must have told me to do it on purpose, knowing it was impossible. And then he sighed again. Frisk heard him and said, My dear master, don't despair. The luck may change. You are too good not to be happy. Let us go down to the river as soon as it is light. But Charming only gave him two little pats and said nothing. And very soon he fell asleep. At the first glimmer of dawn, Frisk began to jump about. And when he had waked Charming, they went out together, first into the garden and then down to the river's brink, where they wandered up and down. Charming was thinking sadly of having to go back unsuccessful when he heard someone calling, Charming, Charming. He looked all about him and thought he must be dreaming, as he could not see anybody. Then he walked on, and the voice called again, Charming, Charming. Who calls me, said he. Frisk, who was very small and could look closely into the water, cried out, I see a golden carp coming. And sure enough, there was the great carp, who said to Charming, You saved my life in the meadow by the willow tree, and I promised that I would repay you. Take this. It is Princess Goldilocks' ring. Charming took the ring out of Dame Carp's mouth, thanking her a thousand times. And he and Tiny Frisk went straight to the palace, where someone told the princess that he was asking to see her. Ah, poor fellow, said she. He must have come to say goodbye, finding it impossible to do as I asked. So in came Charming, who presented her with the ring and said, Madam, I have done your bidding. Will it please you to marry my master? When the princess saw her ring brought back to her unhurt, she was so astonished that she thought she must be dreaming. Truly, Charming, said she, you must be the favorite of some fairy or you could have never found it. Madam, answered he, I was helped by nothing but my desire to obey your wishes. Since you are so kind, said she, perhaps you would do me another service, for till it is done I will never be married. There is a prince not far from here, whose name is Galifron, who once wanted to marry me, but when I refused he uttered the most terrible threats against me, and vowed that he would lay waste my country. But what could I do? I could not marry a frightful giant as tall as a tower, who eats up people as a monkey eats chestnuts, and who talks so loud that anybody who has to listen to him becomes quite deaf. Nevertheless, he does not cease to persecute me and to kill my subjects. So before I can listen to your proposal, you must kill him and bring me his head. Charming was rather dismayed at this command, but he answered, Very well, princess. I will fight this Galifron. I believe that he will kill me, but at any rate, I shall die in your defense. Then the princess was frightened and said everything she could think of to prevent Charming from fighting the giant, but it was of no use. And he went out to arm himself suitably, and then, taking a little frisk with him, he mounted his horse and set out for Galifron's country. Everyone he met told him what a terrible giant Galifron was, and that nobody dared go near him. And the more he heard, the more frightened he grew. Frisk tried to encourage him by saying, While you are fighting the giant, dear master, I will go and bite his heels, 
and when he stoops down to look at me, you can kill him. Charming praised his little dog's plan, but he knew that his help would not do much good. At last, he drew near the giant's castle and saw to his horror that every path that led to it was strewn with bones. Before long, he saw Galifron coming. His head was higher than the tallest trees, and he sang in a terrible voice. Bring out your little boys and girls. Pray, do not stay to do their curls, for I shall eat so very many, I shall not know if they have any. Thereupon, Charming sang out as loud as he could, to the same tune. Come out and meet the valiant Charming, who finds you not at all alarming. Although he is not very tall, he's big enough to make you fall. The rhymes were not very correct, but you see he had made them up so quickly that it is a miracle that they were not worse, especially as he was horribly frightened all the time. When Galifron heard these words, he looked all about him and saw Charming standing, sword in hand. This put the giant into a terrible rage, and he aimed a blow at Charming with his huge iron club, which would certainly have killed him if it had reached him. But at that instant, a raven perched upon the giant's head, and pecking with its strong beak and beating with its great wings, so confused and blinded him that all his blows fell harmlessly upon the air, and Charming, rushing in, gave him several strokes with his sharp sword so that he fell to the ground. Whereupon Charming cut off his head before he knew anything about it, and the raven from a tree close by croaked out, You see, I have not forgotten the good turn you did me in killing the eagle. Today I think I have fulfilled my promise of repaying you. Indeed, I owe you more gratitude than you ever owed me, replied Charming and then he mounted his horse and rode off with Galifron's head. When he reached the city, the people ran after him in crowds, crying, Behold the brave Charming who has killed the giant, and their shouts reached the princess's ear. But she dared not ask what was happening, for fear she should hear that Charming had been killed. But very soon he arrived at the palace with the giant's head, of which she was still terrified, though it could no longer do her any harm. Princess, said Charming, I have killed your enemy. I hope you will now consent to marry the king, my master. Oh dear, no, said the princess. Not until you have brought me some water from the gloomy cavern. Not far from here, there is a deep cave, the entrance to which is guarded by two dragons with fiery eyes, who will not allow anyone to pass them. When you get into the cavern, you will find an immense hole but you must go down, and it is full of toads and snakes. At the bottom of this hole, there is another little cave, in which rises the fountain of health and beauty. It is some of this water that I really must have. Everything it touches becomes wonderful. The beautiful things will always remain beautiful, and the ugly things become lovely. If one is young, one never grows old, and if one is old, one becomes young. You see, Charming, I could not leave my kingdom without taking some of it with me. Princess, said he, you at least can never need this water, but I am an unhappy ambassador 
whose death you desire. Where you send me I will go, though I know I shall never return. And as the Princess Goldilocks showed no sign of relenting, he started with his little dog for the gloomy cavern. Everyone he met on the way said, What a pity that a handsome young man should throw his life away so carelessly. He is going to the cavern alone, though if he had a hundred men with him, he could not succeed. Why does the princess ask impossibilities? Charming said nothing, but he was very sad. When he was near the top of a hill, he dismounted to let his horse graze, while Frisk amused himself by chasing flies. Charming knew he could not be far from the gloomy cavern, and on looking about him, he saw a black, hideous rock from which came a thick smoke, followed in a moment by one of the dragons with fire blazing from his mouth and eyes. His body was yellow and green, and his claws scarlet, and his tail was so long that it lay in a hundred coils. Frisk was so terrified at the sight of it that he did not know where to hide. Charming, quite determined to get the water or die, now drew his sword, and taking the crystal flask which pretty Goldilocks had given him to fill, said to Frisk, I'm sure that I shall never come back from this expedition. When I'm dead, go to the princess and tell her that her errand has cost me my life. Then find the king my master and relate all my adventures to him. As he spoke, he heard a voice calling, Charming, Charming. Who calls me, said he. Then he saw an owl sitting in a hollow tree who said to him, You saved my life when I was caught in the net. Now I can repay you. Trust me with the flask, for I know all the ways of the gloomy cavern and can fill it from the fountain of beauty. Charmin was only too glad to give her the flask, and she flitted into the cavern quite unnoticed by the dragon, and after some time returned with the flask, filled to the very brim with sparkling water. Charming thanked her with all his heart and joyfully hastened back to the town. He went straight to the palace and gave the flask to the princess, who had no further objection to make. So she thanked Charming and ordered that preparation should be made for her departure, and they soon set out together. The princess found Charming such an agreeable companion that she sometimes said to him, Why didn't we stay where we were? I could have made you king, and we should have been so happy. But Charming only answered, I could not have done anything that would have vexed my master so much, even for a kingdom, or to please you, though I think you are as beautiful as the sun. At last they reached the king's great city, and he came out to meet the princess, bringing magnificent presents, and the marriage was celebrated with great rejoicings. But Goldilocks was so fond of Charming, that she could not be happy unless he was near her, and she was always singing his praises. If it hadn't been for Charming, she said to the king, I should never have come here. You ought to be very much obliged to him, for he did the most impossible things and got me water from the fountain of beauty, so I can never grow old and shall get prettier every year. Then Charming's enemies said to the king, It is a wonder that you are not jealous. The queen thinks there's nobody in the world like Charming. As if anybody you had sent could not have done just as much. It is quite true, now I come to think of it, said the king. Let him be chained hand and foot and thrown into the tower. 
So they took Charming, and as a reward for having served the king so faithfully, he was shut up in the tower, where he only saw the jailer, who gave him a piece of bread and a pitcher of water every day. However, little Frisk came to console him and told him all the news. When Pretty Goldilocks heard what had happened, she threw herself at the king's feet and begged him to set Charming free. But the more she cried, the more angry he was. And at last she saw that it was useless to say any more. But it made her very sad. Then the king took it in his head that perhaps he was not handsome enough to please the Princess Goldilocks. And he thought he could bathe his face with the water from the fountain of beauty, which was in the flask on a shelf in the princess's room, where she had placed it, that she might see it often. Now it happened that one of the princess's ladies, in chasing a spider, had knocked the flask off the shelf and broken it, and every drop of the water had been spilt. Not knowing what to do, she had hastily swept up the pieces of crystal, and then remembered that in the king's room she'd seen a flask of exactly the same shape, also filled with sparkling water. So without saying a word, she fetched it and stood it upon the queen's shelf. Now the water in this flask was what was used in the kingdom for getting rid of troublesome people. Instead of having their heads cut off in the usual way, their faces were bathed with the water, and they instantly fell asleep and never woke up any more. So when the king, thinking to improve his beauty, took the flask and sprinkled the water upon his face, he fell asleep and nobody could wake him. Little Frisk was the first to hear the news, and he ran to tell Charming, who sent him to beg the princess not to forget the poor prisoner. All the palace was in confusion on account of the king's death, but tiny Frisk made his way through the crowd to the princess's side and said, Madam, do not forget poor Charming. Then she remembered all he had done for her, and without saying a word to anyone, went straight to the tower, and with her own hands took off Charming's chains. Then putting a golden crown upon his head and the royal mantle upon his shoulders, she said, Come, faithful Charming, I make you king and will take you for my husband. Charming, once more free and happy, fell at her feet and thanked her for her gracious words. Everybody was delighted that he should be king, and the wedding, which took place at once, was the prettiest that can be imagined and Prince Charming and Princess Goldilocks lived happily ever after. The Story of the Three Bears Once upon a time, there were three bears who lived together in a house of their own in a wood. One of them was a little, small, wee bear and one was a middle-sized bear, and the other was a great huge bear. They had each a pot for their porridge, a little pot for the little small wee bear, and a middle-sized pot for the middle bear, and a great pot for the great huge bear. And they had each a chair to sit in, a little chair for the little small wee bear, and a middle-sized chair for the middle bear, and a great chair for the great huge bear. And they had each a bed to sleep in, a little bed for the little small wee bear, and a middle-sized bed for the middle bear, and a great bed 
for the great huge bear. One day, after they had made the porridge for their breakfast and poured it into their porridge pots, they walked out into the wood while the porridge was cooling, that they might not burn their mouths by beginning too soon to eat it. And while they were walking, a little old woman came to the house. She could not have been a good, honest old woman, for first she looked in at the window, and then she peeped in at the keyhole, and seeing nobody in the house, she lifted the latch. The door was not fastened, because the bears were good bears, who did nobody any harm, and never suspected that anyone would harm them. So the little old woman opened the door and went in, and well pleased she was when she saw the porridge on the table. If she had been a good little old woman, she would have waited till the bears came home, and then perhaps they would have asked her to breakfast, for they were good bears, a little rough or so, as the manner of bears is, but for all that, very good-natured and hospitable. But she was an impudent, bad old woman, and set about helping herself. So first she tasted the porridge of the great huge bear, and that was too hot for her, and she said a bad word about that. And then she tasted the porridge of the middle bear, and that was too cold for her, and she said a bad word about that too. And then she went to the porridge of the little, small, wee bear and tasted that. And that was neither too hot nor too cold, but just right. And she liked it so well that she ate it all up. But the naughty old woman said a bad word about the little porridge pot because it did not hold enough for her. Then the little old woman sat down in the chair of the great huge bear, and that was too hard for her. And then she sat down in the chair of the middle bear, and that was too soft for her. And then she sat down in the chair of the little small wee bear, and that was neither too hard nor too soft, but just right. So she seated herself in it, and there she sat till the bottom of the chair came out, and down came she, plump upon the ground. And the naughty old woman said a wicked word about that too. Then the little old woman went upstairs into the bedchamber in which the three bears slept. At first she lay down upon the bed of the great huge bear, but that was too high at the head for her. And next she lay down upon the bed of the middle bear, and that was too high at the foot for her. And then she lay down upon the bed of the little, small, wee bear. And that was neither too high at the head, nor at the foot, but just right. So she covered herself up comfortably, and there she lay, till she fell fast asleep. By this time, the three bears thought their porridge would be cool enough, so they came home to breakfast. Now the little old woman had left the spoon of the great huge bear standing in his porridge. Somebody has been at my porridge, said the great huge bear in his great gruff voice. And when the middle bear looked at his, he saw that the spoon was standing in it too. They were wooden spoons. If they had been silver ones, the naughty old woman would have put them in her pocket. 
Somebody has been at my porridge, said the middle bear in his middle voice. Then the little, small, wee bear looked at his, and there was the spoon in the porridge pot, but the porridge was all gone. Somebody has been at my porridge and has eaten it all up, said the little, small, wee bear in his little, small, wee voice. Upon this, the three bears, seeing that someone had entered their house and eaten up the little, small, wee bear's breakfast, began to look about them. Now the little old woman had not put the hard cushion straight when she rose from the chair of the great, huge bear. Somebody has been sitting in my chair, said the great, huge bear in his great, gruff voice. And the little old woman had squatted down the soft cushion of the middle bear. Somebody has been sitting in my chair, said the middle bear in his middle voice. And you know what the little old woman had done to the third chair. Somebody has been sitting in my chair and has sat the bottom of it out, said the little small wee bear in his little small wee voice. Then the three bears thought it necessary that they should make further search. So they went upstairs into their bedchamber. Now the little old woman had pulled the pillow of the great huge bear out of its place. Somebody has been lying in my bed, said the great huge bear in his great, rough, gruff voice. And the little old woman had pulled the bolster of the middle bear out of its place. Somebody has been lying in my bed, said the middle bear in his middle voice. And when the little small wee bear came to look at his bed, there was the bolster in its place and the pillow in its place upon the bolster. And upon the pillow was the little old woman's ugly head, which was not in its place, for she had no business there. Somebody has been lying in my bed, and here she is, said the little small wee bear in his little small wee voice. The little old woman had heard in her sleep the great, rough, gruff voice of the great huge bear. She was so fast asleep that it was no more to her than the roaring of wind or the rumbling of thunder. And she had heard the middle voice of the middle bear, but it was only as if she had heard someone speaking in a dream. When she heard the little, small, wee voice of the little, small, wee bear, it was so sharp and so shrill that it had awakened her at once. Up she started, and when she saw the three bears on one side of the bed, she tumbled herself out of the other and ran to the window. Now the window was open, because the bears, like good, tidy bears as they were, always opened their bedchamber window when they got up in the morning. Out the little old woman jumped, and whether she broke her neck in the fall, or ran into the wood and was lost there, or found her way out of the wood, and was taken up by the constable and sent to the house of correction, for vagrant as she was, I cannot tell. But the three bears never saw anything more of her. The Story of the Fisherman and His Wife There was once a fisherman and his wife who lived together in a little hut close to the sea. And the fisherman used to go down every day to fish, and he would fish and fish. So he used to sit with his rod and gaze into the shining water, and he would gaze and gaze. 
now once the line was pulled deep under the water, and when he hauled it up, he hauled a large flounder with it. The flounder said to him, Listen, fisherman, I pray you to let me go. I am not a real flounder. I am an enchanted prince. What good will it do if you kill me? I shall not taste nice. Put me back into the water and let me swim away. Well, said the man, you need not make so much noise about it. I am sure I had better let a flounder that can talk swim away. With these words, he put him back again into the shining water, and the flounder sank to the bottom, leaving a long streak of blood behind. Then the fisherman got up and went home to his wife in the hut. Husband, said his wife, have you caught nothing today? No, said the man. I caught a flounder who said he was an enchanted prince, so I let him swim away again. Did you wish nothing from him? said his wife. No, said the man. What should I have wished from him? Ah, said the woman. It's dreadful to have to live all one's life in this hut that is so small and dirty. You ought to have wished for a cottage. Go now and call him. Say to him that we choose to have a cottage, and he will certainly give it to you. Alas, said the man. Why should I go down there again? Why, said his wife, you caught him, and then let him go again, so he is sure to give you what you ask. Go down quickly. The man did not like going at all, but as his wife was not to be persuaded, he went down to the sea. When he came there, the sea was quite green and yellow, and was no longer shining. So he stood on the shore and said, Once a prince, but changed you be into a flounder in the sea. Come, for my wife Isabel wishes what I dare not tell. Then the flounder came swimming up and said, Well, what does she want? Alas, said the man, my wife says I ought to have kept you and wished something from you. She does not want to live any longer in the hut. She would like a cottage. Go home then, said the flounder. She has it. So the man went home, and there was his wife no longer in the hut, but in its place was a beautiful cottage, and his wife was sitting in front of the door on a bench. She took him by the hand and said to him, Come inside and see if this is not much better. They went in, and inside the cottage was a tiny hall and a beautiful sitting room and a bedroom in which stood a bed, a kitchen, and a dining room, all furnished with the best of everything, and fitted up with every kind of tin and copper utensil. And outside was a little yard, in which were chickens and ducks, and also a little garden with vegetables and fruit trees. See, said the wife, isn't this nice? Yes, answered her husband. Here we shall remain and live very happily. We will think about that said his wife. With these words, they had their supper and went to bed. All went well for a week or a fortnight. Then the wife said, Listen, husband, the cottage is much too small, and so is the yard and the garden. The flounder might just as well have sent us a larger house. I should like to live in a great stone castle. Go down to the flounder and tell him to send us a castle. Ah, wife, said the fisherman. 
The cottage is quite good enough. Why do we choose to live in a castle? Why, said the wife. You go down. The flounder can quite well do that. No, wife, said the man. The flounder gave us the cottage. I do not like to go to him again. He might take it amiss. Go, said his wife. He can certainly give it to us, and ought to do so willingly. Go at once. The fisherman's heart was very heavy, and did not like going. He said to himself, it is not right. Still, he went down. When he came to the sea, the water was all violet and dark blue and dull and thick and no longer green and yellow, but it was still smooth. So he stood there and said, Once a prince, but changed you be into a flounder in the sea. Come, for my wife Isabel wishes what I dare not tell. What does she want now? said the flounder. Ah, said the fisherman, half ashamed. She wants to live in a great stone castle. Go home. She's standing before the door, said the flounder. The fisherman went home and thought he would find no house. When he came near, there stood a great stone palace, and his wife was standing on the steps, about to enter. She took him by the hand and said, Come inside. Then he went with her, and inside the castle was a large hall with a marble floor, and there were heaps of servants who threw open the great doors and the walls were covered with beautiful tapestry, and in the apartments were gilded chairs and tables, and crystal chandeliers hung from the ceiling, and all the rooms were beautifully carpeted. The best of food and drink also was set before them when they wished to dine, and outside the house was a large courtyard with horse and cow stables and a coach house, all fine buildings, and a splendid garden with the most beautiful flowers and fruit. And in a park quite a league long were deer and roe and hares, and everything one could wish for. Now, said the wife, isn't this beautiful? Yes, indeed, said the fisherman. Now we shall stay here and live in this beautiful castle and be very happy. We will consider the matter, said his wife, and they went to bed. The next morning the wife woke up first at daybreak and looked out of the bed at the beautiful country stretched before her. Her husband was still sleeping, so she dug her elbows into his side and said, Husband, get up and look out of the window. Could we not become the king of all this land? Go down to the flounder and tell him we choose to be king. Ah, wife, replied the husband. Why should we be king? I don't want to be king. Well, said his wife, if you don't want to be king, I will be king. Go down to the flounder. I will be king. Alas, wife, said the fisherman. Why do you want to be king? I can't ask him that. And why not, said his wife. Go down at once. I must be king. So the fisherman went, though much vexed that his wife wanted to be king. It is not right. It is not right, he thought. He did not wish to go, yet he went. When he came to the sea, the water was a dark grey colour, and it was heaving against the shore. So he stood and said, Once a prince, but changed you be into a flounder in the sea. Come, for my wife Isabel wishes what I dare not tell. What does she want now? asked the flounder. Alas, said the fisherman, she wants to be king. Go home, 
she is that already, said the flounder. The fisherman went home, and when he came near the palace, he saw that it had become much larger, and that it had great towers and splendid ornamental carving on it. A sentinel was standing before the gate, and there were numbers of soldiers with kettle drums and trumpets. And when he went into the palace, he found everything was of pure marble and gold, and the curtains of damask with tassels of gold. Then the doors of the hall flew open, and there stood the whole court round his wife, who was sitting on a high throne of gold and diamonds. She wore a great golden crown, and had a scepter of gold and precious stones in her hand. And by her on either side stood six pages in a row, each one a head taller than the other. Then he went before her and said, Ah, wife, are you king now? Yes, said his wife, now I am king. He stood looking at her, and when he had looked for some time, he said, Let that be enough, wife, now that you are king. Now we have nothing more to wish for. Nay, husband, said his wife restlessly, my wishing powers are boundless. I cannot restrain them any longer. Go down to the flounder. King I am, now I must be emperor. Alas, wife, said the fisherman, why do you want to be emperor? Husband, said she, go to the flounder, I will be emperor. Ah, wife, he said, he cannot make you emperor. I don't like to ask him that. There is only one emperor in the kingdom. And indeed, he cannot make you emperor. What? said his wife. I am king, and you are my husband. Will you go at once? Go. If he can make king, he can make emperor. An emperor I must and will be. Go. So he had to go. But as he went, he felt quite frightened, and he thought to himself, This can't be right. To be emperor is too ambitious. The flounder will be tired out at last. Thinking this, he came to the shore. The sea was quite black and thick, and it was breaking high on the beach. The foam was flying about, and the wind was blowing. Everything looked bleak. The fisherman was chilled with fear. He stood and said, Once a prince, but changed you be into a flounder in the sea. Come, for my wife Isabel wishes what I dare not tell. What does she want now? asked the flounder. Alas, flounder, he said, my wife wants to be emperor. Go home, said the flounder. She is that already. So the fisherman went home, and when he came there he saw the whole castle was made out of polished marble, ornamented with alabaster statues and gold. Before the gate, soldiers were marching, blowing trumpets and beating drums. Inside the palace were walking barons, counts and dukes, acting as servants. They opened the door, which was of beaten gold. And when he entered, he saw his wife upon a throne which was made out of a single block of gold, and which was quite six cubits high. She had on a great golden crown, which was three yards high, and set with brilliance and sparkling gems. In one hand she held a scepter, and in the other the imperial globe. And on either side of her stood two rows of halberdiers, each smaller than the other. From a seven-foot giant to the tiniest little man, no higher than my little finger. Many princes and dukes were standing before her. The fisherman went 
up to her quietly and said, Wife, are you emperor now? Yes, she said, I am emperor. He stood looking at her magnificence, and when he had watched her for some time, said, Ah, wife, let that be enough, now that you are emperor. Husband, said she, why are you standing there? I am emperor now, and I want to be pope too. Go down to the flounder. Alas, wife, said the fisherman, what more do you want? You cannot be pope. There is only one pope in Christendom, and he cannot make you that. Husband, she said, I will be pope. Go down quickly. I must be pope today. No, wife, said the fisherman, I cannot ask him that. It is not right. It is too much. The flounder cannot make you pope. Husband, what nonsense, said his wife. If he can make emperor, he can make pope too. Go down this instant. I am emperor, and you are my husband. Will you be off at once? So he was frightened and went out, but he felt quite faint and trembled and shook, and his knees and legs began to give way under him. The wind was blowing fiercely across the land, and the clouds flying across the sky looked as gloomy as if it were night. The leaves were being blown from the trees. The water was foaming and seething and dashing upon the shore. And in the distance he saw the ships in great distress, dancing and tossing on the waves. Still the sky was very blue in the middle, although at the sides there was an angry red as in a great storm. So he stood shuddering in anxiety and said, Once a prince, what change do you be into a flounder in the sea? Come, for my wife Isabel wishes what I dare not tell. But what does she want now? asked the flounder. Alas, said the fisherman, she wants to be pope. Go home then, she is that already, said the flounder. Then he went home, and when he came there he saw, as it were, a large church surrounded by palaces. He pushed his way through the people. The interior was lit up with thousands and thousands of candles, and his wife was dressed in cloth of gold and was sitting on a much higher throne, and she wore three great golden crowns. Round her were numbers of church dignitaries, and on either side were standing two rows of tapers, the largest of them as tall as a steeple and the smallest as tiny as a Christmas tree candle. All the emperors and kings were on their knees before her and were kissing her foot. Wife, said the fisherman, looking at her, are you Pope now? Yes, she said, I am Pope. So he stood staring at her, and it was as if he were looking at the bright sun. When he had watched her for some time, he said, Ah, wife, let it be enough that you are Pope. But she sat as straight as a tree, and did not move or bend the least bit. He said again, Wife, be content now that you are Pope. You cannot become anything more. We will think about that, said his wife. With these words they went to bed. But the woman was not content. Her greed would not allow her to sleep. And she kept on thinking and thinking what she could still become. The fisherman slept well and soundly, for he had done a great deal that day, but his wife could not sleep at all, and turned from one side to another the whole night long and thought, till she could think no longer, what more she could become. Then the sun began to rise, 
and when she saw the red dawn, she went to the end of the bed and looked at it. And as she was watching the sun rise out of the window, she thought, Ha! Could I not make the sun rise? Husband, said she, poking him in the ribs with her elbows, wake up. Go down to the flounder. I will be a god. The fisherman was still half asleep, yet he was so frightened that he fell out of bed. He thought he had not heard right, and opened his eyes wide and said, What did you say, wife? Husband, she said, If I cannot make the sun rise when I appear, I cannot rest. I shall never have a quiet moment till I can make the sun rise. He looked at her in horror, and a shudder ran over him. Go down at once. I will be a god. Alas, wife, said the fisherman, falling on his knees before her. The flounder cannot do that. Emperor and pope he can make you. I implore you, be content and remain pope. Then she flew into a wild passion. Her hair hung about her face. She pushed him with her foot and screamed, I am not contented, and I shall not be contented. Will you go? So he hurried on his clothes as fast as possible and ran away as if he were mad. But the storm was raging so fiercely that he could scarcely stand. Houses and trees were being blown down, the mountains were being shaken, and pieces of rock were rolling in the sea. The sky was as black as ink, it was thundering and lightning, and the sea was tossing in great waves as high as church towers and mountains, and each had a white crest of foam. So he shouted, not able to hear his own voice. Once a prince, what change do you be into a flounder in the sea? Come, for my wife Isabel wishes what I dare not tell. What does she want now? asked the flounder. Alas, said he, she wants to be a god. Go home then. She's sitting again in the hut. And there they are sitting to this day. Golden Touch, a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Once upon a time, there lived a very rich man and a king besides, whose name was Midas, and he had a little girl, whom nobody but myself ever heard of, and whose name I either never knew or have entirely forgotten. So because I love odd names for little girls, I choose to call her Marigold. This King Midas was fonder of gold than of anything else in the world. He valued his royal crown chiefly because it was composed of that precious metal. If he loved anything better or half so well, it was the one little maiden who played so merrily around her father's footstool. But the more Midas loved his daughter, the more did he desire and seek for wealth. He thought, foolish man, that the best thing he could possibly do for this dear child would be to bequeath her the immensest pile of yellow, glistening coin that had ever been heaped together since the world was made. Thus he gave all his thoughts and all his time to this one purpose. 
if he ever happened to gaze for an instant at the gold-tinted clouds of sunset, he wished that they were real gold and that they could be squeezed safely into his strongbox. When little Marigold ran to meet him with a bunch of buttercups and dandelions, he used to say, if these flowers were as golden as they look, they would be worth the plucking. And yet, in his earlier days, before he was so entirely possessed of this insane desire for riches, King Midas had shown a great taste for flowers. He had planted a garden in which grew the biggest and beautifulest and sweetest roses that any mortal ever saw or smelt. These roses were still growing in the garden, as large, as lovely, and as fragrant as when Midas used to pass whole hours by gazing at them and inhaling their perfume. But now if he looked at them at all, it was only to calculate how much the garden would be worth if each of the innumerable rose petals were a thin plate of gold. And though he was once fond of music, in spite of an idle story about his airs, which were said to resemble those of a donkey, the only music for Midas now was the clink of one coin against another. At length, as people always grow more and more foolish unless they take care to grow wiser and wiser, Midas had got to be so exceedingly unreasonable that he could scarcely bear to see or touch any object that was not gold. He made it his custom, therefore, to pass a large portion of every day in a dark and dreary apartment underground at the basement of his palace. It was here that he kept his wealth. To this dismal hole, for it was a little better than a dungeon, Midas betook himself whenever he wanted to be particularly happy. Here, after carefully locking the door, he would take a bag of gold coin or gold cup as big as a washbowl or a heavy gold bar or a peck measure of gold dust and bring them from the obscure corners of the room into the one bright and narrow sunbeam that fell from the dungeon-like window. He valued the sunbeam for no other reason but that his treasure would not shine without its help. And then would he reckon over the coins in the bag, toss up the bar and catch it as it came down, sift the gold dust through his fingers, look at the funny image of his own face as it reflected in the burnished circumference of the cup, and whisper to himself, O Midas, rich King Midas, what a happy man art thou. But it was laughable to see how the image of his face kept grinning at him out of the polished surface of the cup. It seemed to be aware of his foolish behaviour and to have a naughty inclination to make fun of him. Midas called himself a happy man, but felt that he was not yet quite so happy as he might be. The very tip-top of enjoyment would never be reached unless the whole world were to become his treasure room and to be filled with yellow metal, which should be all his own. Now I need hardly remind such wise people as you are that in the old, old times when King Midas was alive, a great many things came to pass which we should consider wonderful if they were to happen in our own day and country. And, on the other hand, a great many things take place nowadays 
which seem not only wonderful to us, but at which the people of all times would have stared their eyes out. On the whole, I regard our own times as the strangest of the two. But however that may be, I must go on with my story. Midas was enjoying himself in his treasure room one day, as usual, when he perceived a shadow fall over the heaps of gold. And looking suddenly up, what should he behold of the figure of a stranger standing in the bright and narrow sunbeam? It was a young man with a cheerful and ruddy face. Whether it was that the imagination of King Midas threw a yellow tinge over everything, or whatever the cause might be, he could not help fancying that the smile with which the stranger regarded him had a kind of golden radiance in it. Certainly, although this figure intercepted the sunshine, there was now a brighter gleam upon all the piled-up treasures than before. Even the remotest corners had their share of it and were lighted up when the stranger smiled, as with tips of flame and sparkles of fire. As Midas knew that he had carefully turned the key in the lock and that no mortal strength could possibly break into his treasure room, he of course concluded that this visitor must be something more than mortal. It is no matter about telling you who he was. In those days, when the earth was comparatively a new affair, it was supposed to be often the resort of beings endowed with supernatural powers, and who used to interest themselves in the joys and sorrows of men, women, and children, half playfully and half seriously. Midas had met such beings before now, and was not sorry to meet one of them again. The stranger's aspect, indeed, was so good-humoured and kindly, if not beneficent, that it would have been unreasonable to suspect him of intending any mischief. It was far more probable that he had come to do Midas a favour. And what could that favour be unless to multiply his heaps of treasure? The stranger gazed about the room, and when his lustrous smile had listened upon all the golden objects that were there, he turned again to Midas. You are a wealthy man, friend Midas, he observed. I doubt whether any other four walls on earth contain so much gold as you have contrived to pile up in this room. I have done pretty well, pretty well, answered Midas in a discontented tone. But after all, it is but a trifle when you consider that it has taken me my whole life to get it together. If one could live a thousand years, he might have time to grow rich. What? exclaimed the stranger. Then you are not satisfied. Midas shook his head. And pray, what would satisfy you? asked the stranger. Merely for the curiosity of the thing, I should be glad to know. Midas paused and meditated. He felt a presentiment that this stranger, with such a golden luster in his good-humoured smile, had come hither with both the power and the purpose of gratifying his utmost wishes. Now, therefore, was the fortunate moment when he had but to speak and obtain whatever possible or seemingly impossible thing it might come into his head to ask. So he thought and thought and thought and heaped up one golden mountain upon another in his imagination 
without being able to imagine them big enough. At last, a bright idea occurred to King Midas. It seemed really as bright as the glistening metal which he loved so much. Raising his head, he looked the lustrous stranger in the face. Well, Midas, observed his visitor, I see that you have at length hit upon something that will satisfy you. Tell me your wish. It is only this, replied Midas. I am weary of collecting my treasures with so much trouble and beholding the heap so diminutive after I've done my best. I wish everything that I touch to be changed to gold. The stranger's smile grew so very broad that it seemed to fill the room like an outburst of the sun, gleaming into a shadowy dell where the yellow autumnal leaves, for so looked the lumps and particles of gold, lay strewn in the glow of light. The golden touch, exclaimed he. You certainly deserve credit, friend Midas, for striking out so brilliant a conception. But are you quite sure that this will satisfy you? How could it fail, said Midas? And will you never regret the possession of it? What could induce me, asked Midas. I ask nothing else to render me perfectly happy. Be it as you wish, then, replied the stranger waving his hand in token of farewell. Tomorrow at sunrise you will find yourself gifted with the golden touch. The figure of the stranger then became exceedingly bright, and Midas involuntarily closed his eyes. On opening them again, he beheld only one yellow sunbeam in the room, and all around him, the glistening of the precious metal which he had spent his life in hoarding up. Whether Midas slept as usual that night, the story does not say. Asleep or awake, however, his mind was probably in the state of a child's to whom a beautiful new plaything has been promised in the morning. At any rate, day had hardly peeped over the hills when King Midas was broad awake and stretching his arms out of bed, began to touch the objects that were within reach. He was anxious to prove whether the golden touch had already come, according to the stranger's promise. So he laid his finger on a chair by the bedside, and on various other things, but was grievously disappointed to perceive that they remained of exactly the same substance as before. Indeed, he felt very much afraid that he had only dreamed about the lustrous stranger, or else that the latter had been making game of him. And what a miserable affair would it be if, after all his hopes, Midas must content himself with what little gold he could scrape together by ordinary means instead of creating it by a touch. All this while, it was only the grey of morning, with but a streak of brightness along the edge of the sky where Midas could not see it. He lay in a very disconsolate mood, regretting the downfall of his hopes and kept growing sadder and sadder until the earliest sunbeam shone through the window and gilded the ceiling over his head. It seemed to Midas that this bright yellow sunbeam was reflected in rather a singular way on the white covering of the bed. Looking more closely, what was his astonishment and delight when he found that this linen fabric had been transmuted to what seemed a woven texture of the purest and brightest gold. The golden touch had come to him.
with the first sunbeam. Midas started up in a kind of joyful frenzy and ran about the room, grasping at everything that happened to be in his way. He seized one of the bedposts, and it became immediately a fluted golden pillar. He pulled aside a window curtain in order to admit a clear spectacle of the wonders which he was performing, and the tassel grew heavy in his hand, a mass of gold. He took up a book from the table. At his first touch, it assumed the appearance of such a splendidly bound and gilted-edged volume as one often meets with nowadays. But on running his fingers through the leaves, behold, it was a bundle of thin golden plates in which all the wisdom of the book had grown illegible. He hurriedly put on his clothes and was enraptured to see himself in a magnificent suit of gold and cloth, which retained its flexibility and softness, although it burdened him a little with its weight. He drew out his handkerchief, which little Marigold had hemmed for him. That was likewise gold, with the dear child's neat and pretty stitches running all along the border in gold thread. Somehow or other, this last transformation did not quite please King Midas. He would rather that his little girl's handiwork should have remained just the same as when she climbed his knee and put it into his hand. But it was not worthwhile to vex himself about a trifle. Midas now took his spectacles from his pocket and put them on his nose, in order that he might see more distinctly what he was about. In those days, Spectacles for common people had not been invented, but were already worn by kings, else how could Midas have had any? To his great perplexity, however, excellent as the glasses were, he discovered that he could not possibly see through them, but this was the most natural thing in the world, for in taking them off, the transparent crystal turned out to be plates of yellow metal, and of course were worthless as spectacles, though valuable as gold. It struck Midas as rather inconvenient that with all his wealth he could never again be rich enough to own a pair of serviceable spectacles. It is no great matter, nevertheless, said he to himself, very philosophically. We cannot expect any great good without its being accompanied with some small inconvenience. The golden touch is worth the sacrifice of a pair of spectacles, at least, if not of one's very eyesight. My own eyes will serve for ordinary purposes, and little Marigold will soon be old enough to read to me. Wise King Midas was so exalted by his good fortune that the palace seemed not sufficiently spacious to contain him. He therefore went downstairs and smiled on observing that the balustrade of the staircase became a bar of burnished gold as his hand passed over it in his descent. He lifted the door latch. It was brass only a moment ago, but golden when his fingers quitted it and emerged into the garden. Here, as it happened, he found a great number of beautiful roses in bloom and others in all the stages of lovely bud and blossom. Very delicious was their fragrance in the morning breeze. Their delicate blush was one of the fairest sights in the world, so gentle, so modest and so full of sweet tranquility did these roses seem to be. But Midas knew a way to make them far more precious, according to his way of thinking, than roses had ever been before.
so he took great pains in going from bush to bush and exercised his magic touch most indefatigably until every individual flower and bud and even the worms at the heart of some of them were changed to gold. By the time this good work was completed, King Midas was summoned to breakfast, and as the morning air had given him an excellent appetite, he made haste back to the palace. What was usually a king's breakfast in the days of Midas, I really do not know, and cannot stop now to investigate. To the best of my belief, however, on this particular morning, the breakfast consisted of hot cakes, some nice little brook trout, roasted potatoes, fresh boiled eggs, and coffee for King Midas himself, and a bowl of bread and milk for his daughter, Marigold. At all events, this is a breakfast fit to set before a king, and whether he had it or not, King Minus could not have had better. Little Mary Gold had not yet made her appearance. Her father ordered her to be called, and seating himself at the table, awaited the child's coming in order to begin his own breakfast. To do Midas justice, he really loved his daughter, and loved her so much the more this morning, on account of the good fortune which had befallen him. It was not a great while before he heard her coming along the passageway crying bitterly. This circumstance surprised him, because Marigold was one of the cheerfulest little people whom you would see in a summer's day, and hardly shed a thimbleful of tears in a twelvemonth. When Midas heard her sobs, he determined to put little Marigold into better spirits by an agreeable surprise. So leaning across the table, he touched his daughter's bowl, which was a Chinese one with pretty figures all on it, and transmuted it gleaming gold. Meanwhile, Marigold slowly and disconsolately opened the door and showed herself with her apron at her eyes, still sobbing as if her heart would break. How now, my little lady, cried Midas. Pray, what is the matter with you this bright morning? Marigold, without taking the apron from her eyes, held out her hand, in which was one of the roses which Midas had so recently transmuted. Beautiful, exclaimed her father. And what is there in this magnificent golden rose to make you cry? Ah, dear father, answered the child, as well as her sobs would let her. It is not beautiful, but the ugliest flower that ever grew. As soon as I was dressed, I ran into the garden to gather some roses for you, because I know you like them, and like them the better when garnered by your little daughter. But oh, dear, dear me, what do you think has happened? Such a misfortune. All the beautiful roses that smelled so sweetly and had so many lovely blushes are blighted and spoilt. They are grown quite yellow, as you see with this one, and have no longer any fragrance. What could have been the matter with them? My dear little girl, pray don't cry about it, said Midas, who was ashamed to confess that he himself had brought the change which so greatly afflicted her. Sit down and eat your bread and milk. You will find it easy enough to exchange a golden rose like that, which will last hundreds of years, for an ordinary one, which would wither in a day. I don't care for such roses as this, cried Marigold, tossing it contemptuously away. It has no smell, and the hard petals prick my nose. The child now sat down to table, 
but was so occupied with her grief for the blighted roses that she did not even notice the wonderful transmutation of her bowl. Perhaps this was all for the better, for Mary Gold was accustomed to take pleasure in looking at strange figures and strange trees and houses that were painted on the circumference of the bowl, and these ornaments were now entirely lost in the yellow hue of the metal. Midas, meanwhile, had poured out a cup of coffee, and as a matter of course, the coffee pot, whatever metal it might have been when he took it up, was gold when he set it down. He thought to himself that it was rather an extravagant style of splendor in a king of his simple habits to breakfast off a service of gold, and began to be puzzled with the difficulty of keeping his treasures safe. The cupboard and the kitchen would no longer be a secure place of deposit for articles so valuable as golden bowls and coffee pots. Amid these thoughts, he lifted a spoonful of coffee to his lips, and sipping it, was astonished to perceive that, the instant his lips touched the liquid, it became molten gold, and the next moment hardened into a lump. Ha! exclaimed Midas, rather aghast. What is the matter, father? asked little Mary Gold, gazing at him, with the tears still standing in her eyes. Nothing, child, nothing, said Midas. Eat your milk before it gets quite cold. He took one of the nice little trouts on his plate, and by way of experiment touched its tail with his finger. To his horror, it was immediately transmuted from an admirably fried brook trout into a goldfish, though not one of those goldfishes which people often keep in glass globes as ornaments for the parlour. No, it was really a metallic fish, and looked as if it had been very cunningly made by the nicest goldsmith in the world. Its little bones were now golden wires, its fins and tail were thin plates of gold, and there were the marks of the fork in it, and all the delicate, frothy appearance of a nicely fried fish, exactly imitated in metal. A very pretty piece of work, as you may suppose. Only Kim Midas, just at that moment, would much rather have had a real trout in his dish than this elaborate and valuable imitation of one. I don't quite see, thought he to himself, how I am to get any breakfast. He took one of the smoking hot cakes and had scarcely broken it when to his cruel mortification, though a moment before it had been of the whitest wheat, it assumed the yellow hue of Indian meal. To say the truth, if it had really been a hot Indian cake, Midas would have prized it a good deal more than he did now, when its solidity and increased weight made him too bitterly sensible that it was gold. Almost in despair, he helped himself to a boiled egg, which immediately underwent a change similar to those of the trout and the cake. The egg, indeed, might have been mistaken for one of those which the famous goose in the storybook was in the habit of laying, but King Midas was the only goose that had anything to do with the matter. Well, this is a quandary, thought he, leaning back in his chair and looking quite enviously at little Marigold, who was now eating her bread and milk with great satisfaction. Such a costly breakfast before me, and nothing can be eaten. Hoping that, by dint of great dispatch, he might avoid what he now felt to be a considerable inconvenience. King Midas next snatched a hot potato and attempted to cram it into his mouth and swallow it in a hurry. 
but the golden touch was too nimble for him. He found his mouth full, not of mealy potato, but of solid metal, which so burnt his tongue that he roared aloud, and jumping up from the table began to dance and stamp about the room, both with pain and affright. Father, dear father, cried little Marigold, who was a very affectionate child, pray what is the matter? Have you burnt your mouth? Ah, dear child, groaned Midas, dolefully, I don't know what is to become of your poor father. And truly, my dear folks, did you ever hear of such a pitiable case in all your lives? Hair was literally the richest breakfast that could be set before a king, and its very richness made it absolutely good for nothing. The poorest laborer, sitting down to his crust of bread and a cup of water, was far better off than King Midas, whose delicate food was really worth its weight in gold. And what was to be done? Already at breakfast, Midas was excessively hungry. Would he be less so by dinner time? And how ravenous would be his appetite for supper, which must undoubtedly consist of the same sort of indigestible dishes as those now before him. How many days, think you, would he survive a continuance of this rich fare? These reflections so troubled wise King Midas that he began to doubt whether, after all, riches are the one desirable thing in the world, or even the most desirable. But this was only a passing thought. So fascinated was Midas with the glitter of the yellow metal that he would still refuse to give up the golden touch for so paltry a consideration as a breakfast. Just imagine what a price for one meal's victuals. It would have been the same as paying millions and millions of money, and as many millions more as would take forever to reckon up, for some fried trout, an egg, a potato, a hot cake, and a cup of coffee. It would be quite too dear, thought Midas. Nevertheless, so great was his hunger and the perplexity of his situation that he again groaned aloud, and very grievously too. Our pretty Marigold could endure it no longer. She sat a moment, gazing at her father, and trying with all the might of her little wits to find out what was the matter with him. Then, with a sweet and sorrowful impulse to comfort him, she started from her chair, and running to Midas threw her arms affectionately about his knees. He bent down and kissed her, he felt that his little daughter's love was worth a thousand times more than he had gained by the golden touch. My precious, precious Marigold, cried he. But Marigold made no answer. Alas, what had he done? How fatal was the gift which the stranger bestowed. The moment the lips of Midas touched Marigold's forehead, a change had taken place. Her sweet, rosy face so full of affection as it had been, assumed a glittering yellow color with yellow teardrops congealing on her cheeks. Her beautiful brown ringlets took the same tint. Her soft and tender little form grew hard and inflexible within her father's encircling arms. Oh, terrible misfortune. The victim of his insatiable desire for wealth, little Marigold, was a human child no longer, but a golden statue. Yes, there she was, the questioning look of love, grief, and pity hardened into her face. It was the prettiest and most woeful sight that ever mortal saw. All the features and tokens of Marigold were there, 
Even the beloved little dimple remained in her golden chin. But the more perfect was the resemblance, the greater was the father's agony at beholding this golden image, which was all that was left of him of a daughter. It had been a favourite phrase of Midas, whenever he felt particularly fond of the child, to say that she was worth her weight in gold. And now the phrase had become literally true. And now at last, when it was too late, he felt how infinitely a warm and tender heart that loved him exceeded in value all the wealth that could be piled up betwixt the earth and the sky. It would be too sad a story if I were to tell you how Midas, in the fullness of all his gratified desires, began to wring his hands and bemoan himself, and how he could neither bear to look at Marigold, nor yet to look away from her. Except when his eyes were fixed on the image, he could not possibly believe that she was changed to gold. But stealing another glance, there was the precious little figure, with a yellow teardrop on its yellow cheek, and a look so piteous and tender, that it seemed as if that very expression must needs soften the gold and make it flesh again. This, however, could not be. So Midas had only to wring his hands and to wish that he were the poorest man in the wide world if the loss of all his wealth might bring back the faintest rose colour to his dear child's face. While he was in this tumult of despair, he suddenly beheld a stranger standing near the door. Midas bent down his head without speaking, for he recognised the same figure which had appeared to him the day before in the treasure room and had bestowed on him this disastrous faculty of the golden touch. The stranger's countenance still wore a smile which seemed to shed a yellow luster all about the room and gleamed on little Marigold's image and on the other subjects that had been transmuted by the touch of Midas. Well, friend Midas, said the stranger, Pray, how do you succeed with the golden touch? Midas shook his head. I am very miserable, said he. Very miserable indeed, exclaimed the stranger. And how happens that? Have I not faithfully kept my promise with you? Have you not everything that your heart desired? Gold is not everything, answered Midas, and I have lost all that my heart really cared for. Ah, so you made a discovery since yesterday observed the stranger. Let us see then, which of these two things do you think is really worth the cost? The gift of the golden touch or one cup of clear cold water? Oh, blessed water, exclaimed Midas, it will never moisten my parched throat again. The golden touch, continued the stranger, or a crust of bread? A piece of bread, answered Midas, is worth all the gold on earth. The golden touch, asked the stranger, or your own little marigold, warm, soft, and loving as she was an hour ago. Oh, my dear child, my dear child, cried poor Midas, wringing his hands. I would not have given that one small dimple in her chin for the power of changing this whole big world into a solid lump of gold. You are wiser than you were, King Midas, said the stranger, looking seriously at him. Your own heart, I perceive, has not been entirely changed from flesh to gold. Were it so, your case would indeed be desperate. But you appear to be still capable of understanding that the commonest things, such as lie within everybody's grasp, are more valuable than the riches 
which so many mortals sigh and struggle after. Tell me now, do you sincerely desire to rid yourself of this golden touch? It is hateful to me, replied Midas. A fly settled on his nose, but immediately fell to the floor, for it too had become gold. Midas shuddered. Go then, said the stranger, and plunge into the river that glides past the bottom of your garden. Take likewise a vase of the same water and sprinkle it over any object that you may desire to change back again from gold into its former substance. If you do this in earnestness and sincerity, it may possibly repair the mischief which your avarice has occasioned. King Midas bowed low, and when he lifted his head, the stranger had vanished. You will easily believe that Midas lost no time in snatching up a great earthen pitcher, but alas, it was no longer earthen after he touched it, and hastened to the riverside. As he scampered along and forced his way through the shrubbery, it was positively marvellous to see how the foliage turned yellow behind him, as if the autumn had been there and nowhere else. On reaching the river's brink, he plunged headlong in, without waiting so much as to pull off his shoes. Well, this is really a refreshing bath, snorted King Midas, as his head emerged out of the water, and I think it must have quite washed away the golden touch. And now for filling my pitcher. As he dipped the pitcher into the water, it glanded his very heart to see it change from gold into the same good, honest, earthen vessel which it had been before he touched it. He was conscious also of a change within himself. A cold, hard, and heavy weight seemed to have gone out of his bosom. No doubt, his heart had been gradually losing its human substance and transmuting itself into insensible metal, but had now softened back again into flesh. Perceiving a violet that grew on the bank of the river, Midas touched it with his finger and was overjoyed to find that the delicate flower retained its purple hue instead of undergoing a yellow blight. The curse of the golden touch had therefore really been removed from him. King Midas hastened back to the palace, and I suppose the servants knew not what to make of it when they saw their royal master so carefully bringing home an earthen pitcher of water. But that water which was to undo all the mischief that his folly had wrought, was more precious to Midas than an ocean of molten gold could have been. The first thing he did, as you need hardly be told, was to sprinkle it by handfuls over the golden figure of little Marigold. No sooner did it fall on her than you would have laughed to see how the rosy colour came back to the dear child's cheek and how she began to sneeze and sputter and how astonished she was to find herself dripping wet and her father still throwing more water over her. Pray do not, dear father, cried she. See how you've wet my nice frock, which I put on only this morning. For Marigold did not know that she had been a golden statue, nor could she remember anything that had happened since the moment when she ran with outstretched arms to comfort poor King Midas. Her father did not think it necessary to tell his beloved child how very foolish she had been but contented himself with showing how much wiser he had grown. For this purpose, he led little Marigold into the garden, where he sprinkled all the remainder of the water over the rose bushes, and with such good effect 
that above 5,000 roses recovered their beautiful bloom. There were two circumstances, however, which, as long as he lived, he used to put King Midas in mind of the golden touch. One was that the sands of the river sparkled like gold. The other that little Marigold's hair had now a golden tinge, which he had never observed in it before she had been transmuted by the effect of his kiss. When King Midas had grown quite an old man and used to trot Marigold's children on his knee, he was fond of telling them this marvellous story, pretty much, as I have now told it to you. And then he would stroke their glossy ringlets and tell them that their hair, likewise, had a rich shade of gold, which they had inherited from their mother. And to tell you the truth, my precious little folks, quoth King Midas, diligently trotting the children all the while, ever since that morning, I've hated the very sight of all other gold save this. The Miraculous Picture A myth adapted by Nathaniel Hawthorne and found in his Wonder Book. One evening, in times long ago, old Philemon and his old wife, Baucis, sat at their cottage door, enjoying the calm and beautiful sunset. They had already eaten their frugal supper and intended now to spend a quiet hour or two before bedtime. So they talked together about their garden and their cow and their bees and their grapevine which clamoured over the cottage wall and on which the grapes were beginning to turn purple. But the rude shouts of children and the fierce barking of dogs in the village near at hand grew louder and louder, until at last it was hardly possible for Baucis and Philemon to hear each other speak. Ah, wife, cried Philemon, I fear some poor traveller is seeking hospitality among our neighbours yonder, and instead of giving him food and lodging, they have set their dogs at him as their custom is. Well a day, answered old Baucis, I do wish our neighbours felt a little more kindness for their fellow creatures, and only think of bringing up their children in this naughty way, and patting them on the head when they fling stones at strangers. Those children will never come to any good, said Philemon, shaking his white head. To tell you the truth, wife, I should not wonder if some terrible thing were to happen to all the people in the village, unless they mend their manners. But, as for you and me, so long as providence affords us a crust of bread, let us be ready to give half to any poor, homeless stranger that may come along and need it. That's right, husband, said Baucis, so we will. These old folks, you must know, were quite poor and had to work pretty hard for a living. Old Philemon toiled diligently in his garden while Baucis was always busy with her distaff, or making a little butter and cheese with her cow's milk, or doing one thing and another about the cottage. Their food was seldom anything but bread, milk and vegetables, but sometimes a portion of honey from their beehive and now and then a bunch of grapes that had ripened against the cottage wall. 
that they were two of the kindest old people in the world and would cheerfully have gone without their dinners any day rather than refuse a slice of their brown loaf, a cup of new milk and a spoonful of honey to the weary traveller who might pause before their door. They felt as if such guests had a sort of holiness and they thought, therefore, to treat them better and more bountifully than their own selves. Their cottage stood on a rising ground at some short distance from a village which lay in a hollow valley that was about a half mile in breadth. This valley, in past ages, when the world was new, had probably been the bed of a lake. There fishes had glided to and fro in the depths, and water weeds had grown among the margin, and trees and hills had seen their reflected images in the broad and peaceful mirror. But as the water subsided, men had cultivated the soil and built houses on it, so that it was now a fertile spot and bore no traces of the ancient lake, except a very small brook which meandered through the midst of the village and supplied the inhabitants with water. The valley had been dry land so long that oaks had sprung up and grown great and high and perished with old age and been succeeded by others as tall and stately as the first. Never was there a prettier or more fruitful valley. The very sight of the plenty around them should have made the inhabitants kind and gentle and ready to show their gratitude to Providence by doing good to their fellow creatures. But, we are sorry to say, the people of this lovely village were not worthy to dwell in a spot on which heaven had smiled so beneficently. They were selfish and hard-hearted people and had no pity for the poor nor sympathy with the homeless. They would only have laughed had anybody told them that human beings owe a debt of love to one another because there is no other method of paying the debt of love and care which all of us owe to Providence. You will hardly believe what I'm going to tell you. These naughty people taught their children to be no better than themselves and used to clap their hands by way of encouragement when they saw the little boys and girls run after some poor stranger, shouting at his heels and pelting him with stones. They kept large and fierce dogs, and whenever a traveller ventured to show himself in the village street, this pack of disagreeable curs scampered to meet him, barking, snarling and showing their teeth. Then they would seize him by his leg or by his clothes, just as it happened. And if he were ragged when he came, he was generally a pitiable object before he had time to run away. This was a very terrible thing to poor travellers, as you may suppose, especially when they chanced to be sick or feeble or old. Such persons, if they once knew how badly these unkind people and their unkind children and curs were in the habit of behaving, would go miles and miles out of their way rather than to pass through the village again. What made the matter worse, if possible, was that when rich persons came in their chariots or riding on beautiful horses with their servants in rich liveries attending on them, nobody could be more civil and obsequious than the inhabitants of the village. They would take off their hats and make the humblest bows you ever saw. If the children were rude, they were pretty certain to get their ears boxed, and as for the dogs, 
if a single cur in the pack presumed to yelp, his master instantly beat him with a club and tied him up without any supper. This would have been all very well, only it proved that the villagers cared much about the money that a stranger had in his pocket, and nothing whatever for the human soul, which lives equally in the beggar and the prince. So now you can understand why old Philemon spoke so sorrowfully when he heard the shouts of the children and the barking of the dogs at the further extremity of the village street. There was a confused din, which lasted a good while, and seemed to pass quite through the breadth of the valley. I never heard the dogs so loud, observed the good old man, nor the children so rude, answered his good old wife. They sat shaking their heads one to another, while the noise came nearer and nearer, until, at the foot of the little eminence on which their cottage stood, they saw two travellers approaching on foot. Close behind them came the fierce dogs snarling at their very heels. A little further off ran a crowd of children who sent up shrill cries and flung stones at the two strangers with all their might. Once or twice, the younger of the two men, he was a slender and very active figure, turned about and drove back the dogs with the staff which he carried in his hand. His companion, who was a very tall person, walked calmly along as if disdaining to notice either the naughty children or the pack of curs, whose manners the children seemed to imitate. Both of the travellers were very humbly clad and looked as if they might not have money enough in their pockets to pay for a night's lodging. And this, I'm afraid, was the reason why the villagers had allowed their children and dogs to treat them so rudely. Come, wife, said Philemon to Baucis. Let us go and meet these poor people. No doubt they feel almost too heavy-hearted to climb the hill. Go you and meet them, answered Baucis, while I make haste within doors and see whether we can get them anything for supper. A comfortable bowl of bread and milk would do wonders towards raising their spirits. Accordingly, she hastened into the cottage. Philemon, on his part, went forward and extended his hand with so hospitable an aspect that there was no need of saying what, nevertheless, he did say in the heartiest tone imaginable. Welcome, strangers, welcome. Thank you, replied the younger of the two, in a lively kind of way, notwithstanding his weariness and trouble. This is quite another greeting than we have met with yonder in the village. Pray, why do you live in such a bad neighbourhood? Ah, observed old Philemon with a quiet and benign smile, Providence put me here, I hope, among other reasons, in order that I may make you what amends I can for the inhospitality of my neighbours. Well said, old father, cried the traveller, laughing, and if the truth must be told, my companion and myself need some amends. Those children, the little rascals, have bespattered us finely with their mud balls, and one of the curs has torn my cloak, which was ragged enough already. But I took him across the muzzle with my staff, and I think you may have heard him yelp, even thus far off. Philemon was glad to see him in such good spirits, nor indeed would you have fancied by the traveller's look and manner that he was weary with a long day's journey, besides being disheartened by rough treatment at the end of it. He was dressed in a rather odd way, with a sort of cap on his head, 
the broom of which stuck out over both ears. Though it was a summer evening, he wore a cloak which he kept wrapped close about him, perhaps because his undergarments were shabby. Philemon perceived, too, that he had on a singular pair of shoes, but as it was now growing dusk, and as the old man's eyesight was none the sharpest, he could not precisely tell in what the strangeness consisted. One thing certainly seemed strange. The traveller was so wonderfully light and active that it appeared as if his feet sometimes rose from the ground of their own accord, or could only be kept down by an effort. I used to be light-footed in my youth, said Philemon to the traveller, but I always found my feet grow heavier towards nightfall. There's nothing like a good staff to help one along, answered the stranger, and I happen to have an excellent one, as you see. This staff, in fact, was the oddest-looking staff that Philemon had ever beheld. It was made of olive wood and had something like a pair of wings near the top. Two snakes carved in the wood were represented as twining themselves about the staff and were so very skillfully executed that old Philemon, whose eyes, you know, were getting rather dim, almost thought them alive and that he could see them wriggling and twisting. A curious piece of work, sure enough, said he. A staff with wings. It would be an excellent kind of stick for a little boy to ride astride of. By this time, Philemon and his two guests had reached the cottage door. Friends, said the old man, sit down and rest yourselves here on this bench. My good wife, Baucis, has gone to see what you can have for supper. We are poor folks, but you shall be welcome to whatever we have in the cupboard. The younger stranger threw himself carelessly on the bench, letting his staff fall as he did so. And here happened something rather marvellous, though trifling enough too. The staff seemed to get up from the ground of its own accord, and spreading its little pair of wings, it half hopped, half flew, and leaned itself against the wall of the cottage. There it stood quite still, except that the snakes continued to wriggle. But in my private opinion, old Philemon's eyesight had been playing him tricks again. Before he could ask any questions, the elder stranger drew his attention from the wonderful staff by speaking to him. Was there not, asked the stranger, in a remarkably deep tone of voice, a lake in very ancient times, covering the spot where now stands yonder village? Not in my day, friend, answered Philemon. And yet, I am an old man, as you see. There were always the fields and the meadows, just as they are now, and the old trees, and a little stream murmuring through the midst of the valley. My father, nor his father before him, ever saw it otherwise, so far as I know. And doubtless it will still be the same when old Philemon shall be gone and forgotten. That is more than can be safely foretold, observed the stranger and there was something very stern in his deep voice. He shook his head too, so that his dark and heavy curls were shaken with the movement. Since the inhabitants of yonder village have forgotten the affections and sympathies of their nature, it were better that the lake should be rippling over their dwellings again. The traveller looked so stern that Philemon was really almost frightened, the more so that, at his frown, the twilight seemed suddenly to grow darker, and that, when he shook his head, there was a roll as of thunder in the air. 
but in a moment afterwards, the stranger's face became so kindly and mild that the old man quite forgot his terror. Nevertheless, he could not help feeling that this elder traveller must be no ordinary personage, although he happened now to be attired so humbly and to be journeying on foot. Not that Philemon fancied him a prince in disguise, or any character of that sort, but rather some exceedingly wise man who went about the world in this poor garb, despising wealth and old worldly objects, and seeking everywhere to add a mite to his wisdom. This idea appeared the more probable because when Philemon raised his eyes to the stranger's face, he seemed to see more thought there in one look than he could have studied out in a lifetime. While Bossus was getting the supper, the travellers both began to talk very sociably with Philemon. The younger, indeed, was extremely loquacious and made such shrewd and witty remarks that the good old man continually burst out laughing and pronounced him the merriest fellow whom he had seen for many a day. Pray, my young friend, said he, as they grew familiar together, what may I call you? Why, I am very nimble, as you see, answered the traveller. So if you call me Quicksilver, the name will fit tolerably well. Quicksilver? Quicksilver? repeated Philemon, looking in the traveller's face to see if he was making fun of him. It is a very odd name. And your companion there, has he a strange one? You must ask the thunder to tell it to you, replied Quicksilver, putting on a mysterious look. No other voice is loud enough. This remark, whether it were serious or unjust, might have caused Philemon to conceive a very great awe of the elder stranger. If on venturing to gaze at him, he had not beheld so much beneficence in his visage. But undoubtedly, here was the grandest figure that ever sat so humbly beside a cottage door. When the stranger conversed, it was with gravity, and in such a way that Philemon felt irresistibly moved to tell him everything which he had most at heart. This is always the feeling that people have when they meet with anyone wise enough to comprehend all their good and evil, and to despise not a tittle of it. But Philemon, simple and kind-hearted old man that he was, had not many secrets to disclose. He talked, however, about the events of his past life, in the whole course of which he had never been a score of miles from this very spot. His wife Baucis and himself had dwelt in the cottage from their youth upward, earning their bread by honest labour, always poor, but still contented. He told what excellent butter and cheese Baucis made, and how nice were the vegetables which he raised in his garden. He said too that because they loved one another so very much, it was the wish of both that death might not separate them, but that they should die as they had lived together. As the stranger listened, a smile beamed over his countenance and made its expression as sweet as it was grand. You are a good old man, he said to Philemon, and you have a good old wife to be your helpmate. It is fit that your wish be granted. And it seemed to Philemon, just then, as if the sunset clouds threw up a bright flash from the west and kindled a sudden light in the sky. Baucis had now got supper ready and coming to the door began to make apologies for the poor fare which she was forced to set before her guests. 
Had we known you were coming, said she, my good man and myself would have gone without a morsel, rather than you should lack a proper supper. But I took the most part of today's milk to make cheese, and our last loaf is already half eaten. I never feel the sorrow of being poor save when a poor traveller knocks at our door. All will be very well. Do not trouble yourself, my good dame, replied the elder stranger kindly. An honest, hearty welcome to a guest works miracles with the fair and is capable of turning the coarsest food to nectar and ambrosia. A welcome you shall have, cried Baucis, and likewise a little honey that we happen to have left and a bunch of purple grapes besides. Why, Mother Baucis, it is a feast, exclaimed Quicksilver, laughing. An absolute feast. And you shall see how bravely I will play my part at it. I think I never felt hungrier in my life. Mercy on us, whispered Baucis to her husband. If the young man has such a terrible appetite, I'm afraid there will not be half enough supper. They all went into the cottage. And now, Shall I tell you something that will make your eyes open very wide? It is really one of the oddest circumstances in the whole story. Quicksilver's staff, you recollect, had set itself up against the wall of the cottage. Well, when its master entered the door, leaving this wonderful staff behind, what should it do but immediately spread its little wings and go hopping and fluttering up the doorsteps? Tap, tap went the staff on the kitchen floor, nor did it rest until it had stood itself on end with the greatest gravity and decorum beside Quicksilver's chair. Old Philemon, however, as well as his wife, was so taken up in attending to their guests that no notice was given to what the staff had been about. As Bosses had said, there was but a scanty supper for two hungry travellers. In the middle of the table was a remnant of a brown loaf, with a piece of cheese on one side of it and a dish of honeycomb on the other. There was a pretty good bunch of grapes for each of the guests. A moderately-sized earthen pitcher, nearly full of milk, stood at a corner of the board. And when Bossus had filled two bowls and set them before the strangers, only a little milk remained in the bottom of the pitcher. Alas, it is a very sad business when a bountiful heart finds itself pinched and squeezed among narrow circumstances. Poor Bostas kept wishing that she might starve for a week to come, if it were possible, by doing so, to provide these hungry folks a more plentiful supper. But since the supper was so exceedingly small, she could not help wishing that their appetites had not been quite so large. Why, at their very first sitting down, the travellers both drank off all the milk in their two bowls at a draught. A little more milk, kind Mother Bosses, if you please, said Quicksilver. The day has been hot, and I am very much athirst. Now, my dear people, answered Bosses in great confusion, I'm so sorry and ashamed. But the truth is, there is hardly a drop more milk in the pitcher. Oh, husband. Why didn't we go without our supper? Why, it appears to me, cried Quicksilver, starting up from the table and taking the pitcher by the handle. It really appears to me that matters are not quite so bad as you represent them. Here is certainly more milk in the pitcher. So saying, and to the vast astonishment of bosses, 
he proceeded to fill not only his bowl, but his companions likewise from the pitcher that was supposed to be almost empty. The good woman could scarcely believe her eyes. She had certainly poured out nearly all the milk, and had peeped in afterwards and seen the bottom of the pitcher as she set it down upon the table. But I am old, thought Bosses to herself, and apt to be forgetful. I suppose I must have made a mistake. At all events, the pitcher cannot help being empty now, after filling the bowls twice over. What excellent milk, observed Quicksilver, after quaffing the contents of the second bowl. Excuse me, my kind hostess, but I must really ask you for a little more. Now Bossus had seen, as plainly as she could see anything, that Quicksilver had turned the pitcher upside down and consequently had poured out every drop of milk and filling the last bowl. Of course, there could not possibly be any left. However, in order to let him know how precisely the case was, she lifted the pitcher and made a gesture as if pouring milk into Quicksilver's bowl, but without the remotest idea that any milk would stream forth. What was her surprise, therefore, when such an abundant cascade fell bubbling into the bowl that it was immediately filled to the brim and overflowed upon the table? The two snakes that were twisted about Quicksilver's staff, but neither Bossis or Philemon happened to observe this circumstance, stretched out their heads and began to lap up the spilt milk. And then what a delicious fragrance the milk had. It seemed as if Philemon's only cow must have pastured that day on the richest herbage that could be found anywhere in the world. I only wish that each of you could have a bowl of such nice milk at supper time. And now a slice of your brown loaf, Mother Bosses, said Quicksilver. And a little of that honey. Bosses cut him a slice accordingly. And though the loaf, when she and her husband ate of it, had been rather too dry and crusty to be palatable, it was now as light and moist as if it had been a few hours out of the oven. Tasting a crumb which had fallen on the table, she found it more delicious than bread ever was before, and could hardly believe that it was a loaf of her own kneading and baking. Yet, what other loaf could it possibly be? But oh, the honey, I may just as well let it alone without trying to describe how exquisitely it smelt and looked. Its colour was that of the purest and most transparent gold, and it had the odour of a thousand flowers, but of such flowers as never grew in an earthly garden and to seek which the bees must have flown high above the clouds. The wonder is that after alighting on a flower bed of so delicious fragrance and immortal bloom, they should have been content to fly down again to their hive in Philemon's garden. Never was such honey tasted, seen, or smelt. The perfume floated around the kitchen and made it so delightful that had you closed your eyes, you would have instantly forgotten the low ceiling and smoky walls and have fancied yourself in an arbor with celestial honeysuckles creeping over it. Although good Mother Bossis was a simple old dame, she could not but think that there was something rather out of the common way in all that had been going on. So after helping the guests to bread and honey and laying a bunch of grapes by each of their plates, she sat down by Philemon and told him what she had seen in a whisper. 
Did you ever hear the like? asked she. No, I never did, answered Philemon with a smile. And I rather think, my dear old wife, you've been walking about in a sort of dream. If I had poured out the milk, I should have seen through the business at once. There happened to be a little more in the pitcher than you thought, that is all. Ah, husband, said Baucis, say what you will. These are very uncommon people. Well, well, replied Philemon, still smiling. Perhaps they are. They certainly do look as if they had seen better days, and I am heartily glad to see them making so comfortable a supper. Each of the guests had now taken his bunch of grapes upon his plate. Baucis, who rubbed her eyes in order to see them more clearly, was of the opinion that the clusters had grown larger and richer, and that each separate grape seemed to be on the point of bursting with ripe juice. It was entirely a mystery to her how such grapes could ever have been produced from the old stunted vine that climbed against the cottage wall. Very admirable grapes, these, observed Quitsilver, as he swallowed one after another, without apparently diminishing his cluster. Pray, my good host, whence did you gather them? From my own vine, answered Philemon. You may see one of its branches twisting across the window yonder. But wife and I never thought the grapes very fine ones. I never tasted better, said the guest. Another cup of this delicious milk, if you please. And I shall then have supped better than a prince. This time old Philemon bestirred himself and took up the pitcher, for he was curious to discover whether there was any reality in the marvels which Baucis had whispered to him. He knew that his good old wife was incapable of falsehood, and that she was seldom mistaken in what she supposed to be true. But this was so very singular a case that he wanted to see it with his own eyes. On taking up the pitcher, therefore, he slyly peeped into it, and was fully satisfied that it contained not so much as a single drop. All at once, however, he beheld a little white fountain, which gushed up from the bottom of the pitcher, and speedily filled it to the brim with foaming and deliciously fragrant milk. It was lucky that Philemon, in his surprise, did not drop the miraculous pitcher from his hand. Who are ye, wonder-working strangers, cried he, even more bewildered than his wife had been. Your guests, my good Philemon, and your friends, replied the elder traveller, in his mild, deep voice, that had something at once sweet and awe-inspiring in it. Give me likewise a cup of milk, and may your pitcher never be empty for kind bosses and yourself, any more than for the needy wayfarer. The supper being now over, the strangers requested to be shown to their place of repose. The old people would gladly have talked with them a little longer, and have expressed the wonder which they felt, and their delight at finding the poor and meagre supper prove so much better and more abundant than they had hoped. But the elder traveller had inspired them with such reverence that they dared not ask him any questions. And when Philemon drew Quicksilver aside and inquired how, under the sun, a fountain of milk could have got into an old earthen pitcher, this latter personage pointed to his staff. There is the whole mystery of the affair, quoth Quicksilver, and if you can make it out, I'll thank you to let me know. I can't tell what to make of my staff. It's always playing such odd tricks as this, sometimes getting me a supper, and quite as often stealing it away. If I had any faith in such nonsense, 
I should say the stick was bewitched. He said no more, but looked so slyly in their faces that they rather fancied he was laughing at them. The magic staff went hopping at his heels as Quicksilver quitted the room. When left alone, the good old couple spent some little time in conversation about the events of the evening, and then lay down on the floor and fell asleep fast. They had given up their sleeping room to the guests, and had no other bed for themselves save these planks, which I wish had been so soft as their own hearts. The old man and his wife were stirring betimes in the morning, and the strangers likewise arose with the sun and made their preparations to depart. Philemon hospitably entreated them to remain a little longer until bosses could milk the cow and bake a cake upon the hearth and perhaps find them a few fresh eggs for breakfast. The guests, however, seemed to think it better to accomplish a good part of their journey before the heat of the day should come down. They therefore persisted in setting out immediately, but asked Philemon and Bosses to walk forth with them a short distance and show them the road which they were to take. So they all four issued from the cottage, chatting together like old friends. It was very remarkable indeed how familiar the old couple insensibly grew with the elder traveller, and how their good and simple spirits melted into his, even as two drops of water would melt into the ocean. And as for Quicksilver, with his keen, quick, laughing wits, he appeared to discover every little thought that but peeped into their minds before they suspected it themselves. They sometimes wished, it is true, that he had not been quite so quick-witted, and also that he would fling away his staff, which looked so mysteriously mischievous, with the snakes always writhing about it. But, then again, Quicksilver showed himself so very good-humoured that they would have rejoiced to keep him in their cottage, staff, snakes, and all, every day, and the whole day long. Ah, me, well a day, exclaimed Philemon, when they had walked a little way from their door. If our neighbours only knew what a blessed thing it is to show hospitality to strangers, they would tie up all their dogs and never allow their children to fling another stone. It is a sin and shame for them to behave so. That it is, cried good old bosses, vehemently. And I mean to go this very day and tell some of them what naughty people they are. I fear, remarked Quicksilver, slyly smiling, that you will find none of them at home. The elder traveller's brow just then assumed such a grave, stern and awful grandeur, yet serene withal, that neither Bosses nor Philemon dared to speak a word. They gazed reverently into his face, as if they had been gazing at the sky. When men do not feel towards the humblest stranger as if he were a brother, said the traveller, in tones so deep that they sounded like those of an organ, they are unworthy to exist on earth which was created as the abode of a great human brotherhood. And, by the by, my dear old people, cried Quicksilver, with the liveliest look of fun and mischief in his eyes, where is this same village that you talk about? On which side of us does it lie? Methinks I do not see it hereabouts. Philemon and his wife turned towards the valley, where, at sunset, only the day before, they had seen the meadows, the houses, the gardens, the clumps of trees, the wide green margin street with children playing in it, and all the tokens of business, enjoyment, and prosperity. 
but what was their astonishment? There was no longer any appearance of a village. Even the fertile vale and the hollow of which it lay had ceased to have existence. In its stead, they beheld the broad, blue surface of a lake, which filled the great basin of the valley from brim to brim and reflected the surrounding hills in its bosom with as tranquil an image as if it had been there ever since the creation of the world. For an instant, the lake remained perfectly smooth. Then, a little breeze sprang up and caused the water to dance, glitter and sparkle in the early sunbeams, and to dash, with a pleasant rippling murmur, against the hither shore. The lake seemed so strangely familiar that the old people were greatly perplexed and felt as if they could only have been dreaming about a village having lain there. But the next moment they remembered the vanished dwellings and the faces and characters of the inhabitants far too distinctly for a dream. The village had been there yesterday and now was gone. Alas, cried these kind-hearted old people, what has become of our poor neighbours? They exist no longer as men and women, said the elder traveller in his grand and deep voice, while a roll of thunder seemed to echo it at a distance. There was neither use nor beauty in such a life as theirs, for they never softened or sweetened the hard lot of mortality by the exercise of kindly affections between man and man. They retained no image of the better life in their bosoms. Therefore, the lake, that was of old, has spread itself forth again to reflect the sky. And as for those foolish people, said Quicksilver with his mischievous smile, they are all transformed to fishes. There needed but little change, for they were already a scaly set of rascals and the coldest-blooded beings in existence. So kind, Mother Bosses, whenever you or your husband have an appetite for a dish of boiled trout, he can throw in a line and pull out half a dozen of your old neighbours. Ah, cried Bosses, shuddering. I would not for the world put one of them on the gridiron. No, added Philemon, making a wry face. We could never relish them. As for you, good Philemon, continued the elder traveller, and you, kind bosses, you with your scanty means have mingled so much heartfelt hospitality with your entertainment of the homeless stranger that the milk became an inexhaustible fount of nectar and the brown loaf and the honey were ambrosia. Thus the divinities have feasted at your board of the same viands that supply their banquets on Olympus. You have done well, my dear old friends. Wherefore, request whatever favour you have most at your heart, and it is granted. Philemon and Baucis looked at one another, and then, I know not which of the two it was who spoke, but that one uttered the desire of both their hearts. Let us live together while we live, and leave the world at the same instant when we die, for we have always loved one another. Be it so, replied the stranger with majestic kindness. Now look towards your cottage. They did so, but what was their surprise on beholding a tall edifice of white marble with a wide open portal occupying the spot where their humble residence has so lately stood? There is your home, said the stranger smiling on both of them. Exercise your hospitality in yonder palace as freely as in the poor hovel to which you welcomed us last evening. The 
poor old folks fell on their knees to thank him. But behold, neither he nor Quicksilver was there. So Philemon and Baucis took up their residence in the marble palace and spent their time with vast satisfaction to themselves in making everybody jolly and comfortable who happened to pass that way. The milk pitcher, I must not forget to say, retained its marvellous quality of being never empty when it was desirable to have it full. Whenever an honest, good-natured and free-hearted guest took a draught from this pitcher, he invariably found it the sweetest and most invigorating fluid that ever ran down his throat. But if a cross and disagreeable curmudgeon happened to sip, he was pretty certain to twist his visage in a hard knot and pronounce it a pitcher of sour milk. Thus the old couple lived in their palace a great, great while and grew older and older and very old indeed. At length, however, there came a summer morning when Philemon and Bosses failed to meet their parents, as on other mornings, with one hospitable smile overspreading both their pleasant faces to invite the guests of overnight to breakfast. The guests searched everywhere from top to bottom of the spacious palace, and all to no purpose. But after a great deal of perplexity, they espied, in front of the portal, two venerable trees which nobody could remember to have seen there the day before. Yet there they stood, with their roots fastened deep into the soil, and a huge breadth of foliage overshadowing the whole front of the edifice. One was an oak, and the other a linden tree. Their boughs, it was strange and beautiful to see, were intertwined together and embraced one another, so that each tree seemed to live in the other tree's bosom much more than its own. While the guests were marvelling how these trees, that must have required at least a century to grow, could have come to be so tall and venerable in a single night, a breeze sprang up and set their intermingled boughs astir. And then there was a deep, broad murmur in the air, as if the two mysterious trees were speaking. I am old Philemon, murmured the oak. I am old Baucis, murmured the linden tree. But as the breeze grew stronger, the trees both spoke at once. Philemon, Baucis, Baucis, Philemon. As if one were both and both were one, and talking together in the depths of their mutual heart. It was plain enough to perceive that the good old couple had renewed their age and were now to spend a quiet and delightful hundred years or so, Philemon as an oak and Baucis as a linden tree. And oh, what a hospitable shade did they fling around them. Whenever a wayfarer paused beneath it, he heard a pleasant whisper of the leaves above his head and wondered how the sound should so much resemble words like these. Welcome, welcome, dear traveller, welcome. And some kind of soul that knew what would have pleased old bosses and old Philemon best built a circular seat round both their trunks, where for a great while afterwards the weary and the hungry and the thirsty used to repose themselves and quaff milk abundantly out of the miraculous pitcher. Good night.